Hey guys, it's Jessica. And this is Kendra. You're listening to Lucid, Lucid Lab. Lab. It's Saturday. Yeah, we're recording on a different day today. It feels really strange to be here. It is. <laughs> <laughs> we're usually recording on Fridays, so yeah. we mixed it up this week and uh, we're here a little bit earlier than usual, so we're yeah. trying to wake up and get ready for this podcast. It is a very long one, so yeah. so we need more time than we had allotted yesterday. Yep. And try not to stress out too much, although we are still on a bit of a deadline today. Yes, always. We so busy working moms, like we've mentioned before, and we have lots of things going on. Yeah, and I'm about to possibly get even busier. Oh, yeah? I'll probably have, well, if it works out. I'll have three jobs plus this <laughs> you don't have enough <laughs> and going being on a now. mom. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be crazy. We do what we got to do. Yeah. Right before I came in here, I went to Kendra's neighbor's house because they were having a garage sale. Well, actually, it wasn't a garage sale. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> Apparently, they were auctioning everything online and it was yeah. just out in their front yard for people to Lots come pick furniture. it up. But that just made me think about garage sales. I love garage sales. So yes, it's it's that season now. It is. I know. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have a garage sale, but I can't. Yeah, I like having garage sales and cleaning out all of my old things. I might have to hijack someone else's driveway that is level yeah. so I can have a garage sale. <laughs> yeah, yours is kind of steep. <laughs> yeah. But it just made me think of that. We need a little table in here. Now I want to go to some garage sales. Yes, we could use some new chairs to yes. make our pod space <laughs> nicer. I mean, and we're as more comfortable, comfortable as we can be. Yeah. But eventually, yeah, some new chairs. We're sitting in these lawn chairs. Kind of lawn chairs, yeah. And it's just hard to scoot in and out of them. Yes. They do the trick for now. We need wheels. <laughs> we need wheels, yeah. But then then you get into some of those types of chairs start to creak and do stupid shit. Right. So I don't know. Or you hear us rolling around. Right. <laughs> My daughter, she gave me a little trinket today. Oh. And it's so cute. Do you remember those plastic things that you, I don't know, like you cut them out and you like create them, but then you cook them in the oven? Shrinky dinks. Shrinky dinks. She made one for me. It's on plastic, but she wrote me a note. Aw. And it's a keychain. That's so cool. It's really cute. So now I want to make a bunch of, what are they? Shrinky dinks. Shrinky dinks. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard. I wonder if they even still sell those. I don't think I ever did those with my kids when they were younger. I don't remember that. I'm sure you could just go somewhere like Michael's and get whatever. Yeah, you can probably just make them yourself or go on a YouTube and it'll show you how to do it. Yeah, put it in the oven. But now I want to make a bunch, even though it's really bad for the environment. (laughs) Yeah, add more plastic. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, a letter from my daughter is forever memorialized. Yes. Well, I woke up this morning and I think I feel my age because I spent about six hours yesterday volunteering and planting flowers. Oh, yeah. Which I love planting flowers. This is my favorite time of year, you know, when you get to start putting your gardens and your flowers. But we were volunteering up at a place in the mountains, which was it was beautiful up there yesterday. But we had to like do wheelbarrows full of dirt and (laughs) (laughs) lift big bags. And it was just me and one other girl. You got some blisters? I don't have any blisters. I had gloves. (laughs) I don't believe you then. I'm just (laughs) my achy back. Yeah, (laughs) I had to like, yeah, get the Epsom salts out last night. Mm. And I was like, I've never felt so old. And I was joking with my friend this morning and she's like we're not old we're just out of shape yeah that's true <laughs> which is probably more like yeah it. was it crazy it was raining so much the last two, it like rained three, three days, days straight yeah. there's just water everywhere now I'm like mm-hmm. oh the birds love it though yes. everybody's <laughs> like oh a new lake oh and look look there's a new swimming pool over there yes <laughs> yeah we were I guess under flood watch the last few days mm-hmm. and 
Fortunately, it didn't flood anything really badly because the rain did stop yesterday afternoon finally. But I hear it's coming back this well, afternoon. it started raining again last night because oh. at one point it stopped and I was still in a jacket because it was freezing on top of it. Just because yes. it was like a constant downpour and it wasn't no like sunshine. super heavy, but it was just this constant saturation. It was like living in Seattle here the last few days. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I love Seattle. Me too. <laughs> but... I remember it stopping and then all of a sudden it was like 70 degrees outside and I was like, wait, I wasn't prepared for this picking her up. And then I was all hot in my jacket. And yeah. Like- yeah. I was running into that yesterday when working up in the mountains. It's like I had all the layers. Yeah. But which is smart to do when you're in Colorado. But I was constantly taking my jacket off, putting it on, putting a hat on, taking it <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> I was like, I'm hot. Am I cold? What am I? Yeah. Yeah. It's very indecisive. Well, another thing about just the weather is my daughter, they got a surprise last minute field trip. Oh. And they just had one like three yeah, weeks I before feel like, that. Yeah, I remember you mentioning it. But they went ahead and took them again, but it was an outside field trip. And On it was what in day? the rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, they went to some prairie thing. I don't know. We'd have to ask Elizabeth. She was oh, a yeah, chaperone. She was a chaperone. <laughs> yeah, it was like a prairie, like what it was like to live back in the 1800s. Yeah, kind something of place. like that. And there was mm-hmm. like a little schoolhouse and. I was jealous, though, because Willa came home. She's like, Mom. And I'm like, what? She's like, I got to see three hawks. They like brought oh, out cool. actual birds. And- oh, like a uh, handler. Was yeah. There. That's and cool. I was jealous because hawks are my spirit animal. Yeah. And you could have yeah. been up close. So boo. But she had a good time. Yes, I'm sure. I think it's a memorable one that everybody was just stuck out in the rain all day. I was joking about this with my friend yesterday while we were working um, because our kids, I think everyone goes to one of those. And she said when her daughter went, it rained. And I remember when I took my kids, I was a chaperone and it rained. It's like (laughs) something about that. Maybe that's part of the experience in the 1800s. That's true. You have to walk through the dirt or mud and get used to what it would have been like. So I have an interesting story speaking about the 1800s. So last week you did Fire in the Sky. And yes. remember I was like... Sounds familiar for your family or exactly. something. Exactly. A lot of my family lives in that area. And so I knew that there was more to it. And so I didn't want to say names or anything when we were doing it then. Yeah. But after talking to my dad, I'm like, okay, I have to tell our story. Uh-huh. So you mentioned... The two men with the snow and the flake that created Snowflake. Well, my family is actually the family that settled the entire area. Oh, cool. From the get-go. Okay. So I got some information from my dad. So I don't know the dates that you had. I'd have to listen back. Mm -hmm. I don't know either right now. (laughs) So Flake, the guy Flake, got there first. But Mm -hmm. then Jesse and Smith showed up. And he was the one with like, so he did have five wives. He's one of those guys. Oh, okay. And lots of kids. And he was actually the first president of the East Arizona stake for the Mormon church. And so he moved there and other people. And I believe it was then that snow came with him. Okay. And so they were settling the area and because they were there and they had a place, more people and more people started coming down. So Jesse N. Smith is my dad's great-grandfather. Oh. So there's the Smith part. Uh So that, see, I told you, I'm part of that. So he's my great-great-grandfather, right? Is that how it'd be? If it was your dad's great-grandfather? Yes. Yeah, great-great. Okay. So there's the connection there. And then my maiden name is Frost. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, well, where does Frost come into it? So my dad's grandpa is 
James Harrison Frost, and he okay. married one of Jesse Smith's daughters. Okay. And to be more specific, his third wife's daughter with him. <laughs> That's good. I can't imagine so. the family tree on a family with five I wives. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine? I know. That's quite the tree. It's so like- he has all the history and he has all that stuff. He even has Jesse Smith's journals and everything. Like, right. honestly, after talking to my dad, I'm like, I should do an entire episode on my family. Yeah. It'd be really, really neat. And then I was like, well, where did the Penrods come into play? Because we have a lot of people in that area. So it's Snowflake, the Pine Top, Lakeside, White Mountain area. There's just tons of us. Like uh-huh. I I dare you to just go type in Frost, type in Pinrod or just do something in Snowflake, just Google. It'll just pop up. Just Lots of people. A bunch <laughs> of people. Like it'll go forever. So what I found, okay, I know my family history to an extent, but the Pinrods, so that's my family reunion. The Pinrods are the ones that settled the Pine Top Lakeside area. Okay. My dad became part of the Penrod because his dad married a Penrod. Okay. And we're Frost. Mm-hmm. So that that's how like the Frost Penrods got together. And both of our families separately were in settled that area. those areas. Yeah. Tons of heavy history there. Yeah. For my family. So very cool. Yeah. I thought it was really we had no neat. idea. <laughs> Well, I did. I'm sure at some point I was given the entire history, but you just start to forget some But you didn't know time. that when I was doing the story that it was going to be in that area. No, I didn't. Yeah. You want to do co-star? I want to do something just a little bit lighter. Lighter. I'm going to be covering a lot. So yeah, let's do some co-star. Let's okay. see what the stars have said our day is going to look like. I mean, co-star has been a bit of a bitch to me lately. So <laughs> hold on. Let me see. Let me see what mine says. Oh, she's a bitch again. Well, mine's funny. It says I should invent a new word. <laughs> hmm. I mean, we've kind of invented our own words on this I, podcast. I feel we, like all I do is invent new words we all the time. Like whenever I'm, I don't know, just having a reaction to something, something just comes out of my mouth and I'm like, that's not a word, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> it also says I today I have a stable view of the world and that I am reading voraciously and grasping abstract concepts with ease. I don't know about that, but well, I do throw a bunch of big words at me. No. <laughs> what was it the other day? I sent you like five different videos. I'm yeah, like, what about TikTok. this? And what about this? And what about I'm this? Like, my I'm mind like, is Do you blown. want to believe in flat earth, Kendra? Or should we stay <laughs> with the spheres? This says, it says, you are a Petri dish for brilliant ideas. Don't let a fear Agreed. of rejection keep you from sharing your ideas. I don't no. think I have a fear of rejection. I mean, no, we're always sitting here talking and and I so far tons of people are listening, but no one's told us anything yet. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of cl- only close people. Yeah. So only, yeah. So we want to hear your feedback. I mean, we only want to hear your good feedback. I know no. we said that actually, already. Actually, we everybody can take, has already said good feedback, but we can take some critical feedback if it's helpful. Not like just mean. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I've looked at how other podcasts are talked about, like maybe the way that they talk in the beginning and people are like, just get on with the story right. or whatever. And for me, you know, we're the ones doing this right now. And I have a lot to talk about, but I don't want to just jump just into jump it. Right this in, isn't yeah. some it's not dateline overproduced certain type exactly. of thing. So just, just us through it. In I a guess. Room I don't and, know. If you yeah. don't want to, like skip through it. So mine says <laughs> You're responsible for at least some of your drama. (laughs) (laughs) 
take some responsibility. Okay, co-star, why you got to be a bitch what again? What was the one I sent you the other day? The one day yesterday was, was about your self-deprecating thoughts. Oh, that's what I called it. But what yeah, did that say? Let me see. Really I, you sent it to me. Like, my response was, all right, co-star, stay out of my self-deprecating thoughts already. <laughs> It said, why do you think your life is ruined? Yeah. <laughs> I told you, she's a bitch. It's so mean to me. Um, and then what else does it say? It does say, be alert to your needs. This is a heavy one for me lately. Oh, Been yeah. very... Not paying attention to your uh, needs. Stressed yeah. and stretched very, very thin. It says, today is about making space for all the things that help you feel good about yourself. Comfort acts as the springboard for confidence. You'll find it. My dues are porch swings, sunsets, and shower singing. Belt it out tonight. I'll take the porch swing in the sunset. I don't know where to go do that, but I'll. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a porch swing. Those aren't as big out here. My dues are blank canvas, do it yourself, go get that paint. And, <laughs> and then this random one is punk bands, which I, I mean, like punk bands. Cool. So it's saying. Kendra, go be creative while and listening turn some to punk music. music on. Yeah. I could do that. My Maybe don't I'll do that tonight. My don't is victory laps. Okay, <laughs> so I'm confused. It says find your confidence. Don't celebrate it. No, nope. <laughs> you gotta keep that quiet. Nope. Preening. Don't preen. <laughs> I know. And complacency. Uh, my don'ts are dad jokes, so I won't tell any horrible <sighs> jokes today. I'm full of dad jokes. Don't humble brag. <laughs> I'll try not to that humble was brag mine today. Once, I think. <laughs> and hyperbole. I don't even know for sure what hyperbole is. I'm trying to think. That's like a, that's it's taking like me back a, to my English class. Is it where you blow things out of proportion? It's statements or claims that aren't to be taken seriously. Okay. So kind of. Kind of what I was thinking. A little bit different. So for us though, real quick, it says, you and Kendra can easily understand each other's emotional needs right now, but <laughs> may need to work to maintain a balance between dreaming and reality. Okay. You feel everything or nothing while Kendra feels before they think <laughs> there can be joy in making concrete plans together well we're kind of doing that we're, shit. <laughs> yeah we got lots of concrete plans we've got it mapped out for the whole year <laughs> it's funny that it says I feel before I think because I think I'm the opposite I think about everything before I feel so they're a little off really mm -hmm. I don't know I don't know it's hard to actually gauge yourself yeah. in a moment and maybe your reflection back on that is actually the other Different, way around yeah could be so Anyway, well, that was fun. I'm glad we brought that back for a little bit. I think we're always going to throw that in there. Yeah. Well, we just need to. I don't know. They're fun. So what are we talking about today? Honestly, I'm ready to put this one behind me for a little bit. <laughs> Is it dark? <laughs> it was just so much. Honestly, this could have been a four-parter to oh, me. Okay. I need to get out of this family and get back to my own. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's been taking a lot of your week. There is so much information about this case. And it's actually not talked about all that often. But I just, I couldn't stop. Like we even gave me an extra day to make sure I could right. research <laughs> get this. everything. But I needed at one point to say, okay, that's enough. You know, what it is is what it is. You can't be perfect. Yeah, I can't. So I am going to be talking about the DeFeo family murders. Okay. Everyone knows about Amityville Horror House. Yeah. Okay. I did. You know, like most my age, I'd say I knew about the movies. Yes, I watched the movies growing up. Okay. There was one in 1979 with James Brolin. Yeah. And it also had Lois Lane from Superman, oh, yeah. the actress. <laughs> I actually heard that she wanted nothing to do with this movie or the story after making this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Freaked her out. Well, there's a lot of rumors. I'm actually not going to go into that, but it is an interesting 
piece of it. Just bad hmm. things happen to a lot of people who were involved in the movie. But I remember more the 2005 version with Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George just because of my age. Yeah. And I actually I, haven't watched that one. Really? You haven't? Mm-hmm. I remember even last year at one point, I just stuck it on just to I should <laughs> watch it, it out. again. Yeah. I remember knowing of the story somewhat before seeing the movie, but I just can't recall how. So like I just always had this knowing of Amityville Horror House or right. just something about Everybody, it. Everybody, yeah, knows though, I would think. Just if you're into haunted, haunted house, stuff, you yeah. know Amityville. I'm going to go there. I know. So that's why I, I almost gave up on doing this one right now because it's so much information. And I'm like, no, I need to do it before she goes. Yes. So <laughs> maybe you won't go after this, though. I don't, I don't know. know. You'll just drive by. Well, they don't let you. Yeah, they don't let you in. So yeah, of course not. Someone lives there. There are a lot of renditions of this story. You know, the Amityville Horror House. There's countless movies, documentaries and references. But I didn't know. And honestly, embarrassingly admit that I did not know about the true horror of that house. OK, I probably don't either. And the true story behind why that house which sits at 112 Ocean Avenue, became a focus in American culture, well, and around the world. Okay. And that's the DeFeo family and their murders. So prior to being referred to as the Amityville Horror House, the house was called High Hopes. Okay. I'll get into why. But I truly didn't know the story until I chose this topic to research. I'm like, I need a paranormal. And I'm like, Uh let me do Amityville. And boy, was I so fucking wrong. (laughs) It's just like, I keep doing this to myself. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And then it turns into something completely different. I thought I would be discussing demons and ghosts. Right. But little did I know, like, it's truly something that's actually more sinister. It's the horror of six family members who were murdered one night in that house and all of the controversy that followed that. Wow. Amityville horror, as it is known today, you know, it's a blockbuster phenomenon. Right. It was really pushed by Hollywood. And it's based on one family's account of being haunted while staying there for just a short time. But truly, it's like this cake crumb left on a plate after eating the whole cake like like they did they family know the history or was this all covered up we're gonna get into the whole amityville piece but now we'll understand maybe why it's haunted maybe we'll get into that piece too okay (laughs) this is one of those stories where again we keep doing this to the listeners and to ourselves like your decision I guess <laughs> another one where we're like we don't have the answers but know. you know what so many of these things we don't have the answers we're exactly that's the paranormal for you yep so in this first part I will be talking about the DeFeo family in detail the okay. history of their lives prior to the faithful night to give you an idea of what could have led six members of the same family being killed for all intents and purposes, execution style, including four children. Oh. Drama, abuse, crime, the mob, greed, Ooh. egos, maybe some spiritual influences. Okay. It's a crazy story. I'm excited to hear about it. But before I do that, I want to preface the information that I'm providing with a couple of details. I'm presenting an unpopular opinion. Okay. Compared to pretty much every other account I've listened to or read, a lot of what I say is very differing from what people will say is the truth. Okay. It's so differing that I think a lot of people are just going to be like, wow, you're one of the crazy ones that's going to say that stuff. And we might get a lot of people who write in and be like, really, Jessica? (laughs) (laughs) 
But you know what? I'm different and I researched and I'm more swayed by arguments compared to others because of well, research and facts. And I followed the story and this is what I'm believing is the true story of what happened to the DeFeo family members. But it still leaves a lot of questions. So I'm not saying, here you go, this is what's happening and all the other ones are wrong. You just think this is the most likely scenario. I'm going to help provide the information that I think will help you to sit there and question it a little bit more rather than following the popular narrative that's been pushed since this happened. We don't like to follow the popular narratives in case you guys haven't noticed. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So I'm also going to be including the history and accounts from someone who often in many other reports in the DeFeo family and when talking about the oldest son's life prior to and after the murders didn't exist at the time or so people say. And that is Geraldine DeFeo. Okay. I'll get into why the mention of her is controversial But in watching documentaries and reading her testimonials and the fact that she did not profit off of telling her side of the story, I will mention her from time to time because in the end, what she had to say, being a surviving person of this situation and that was involved with the family, to me, she was credible. And I think that her story and what she had to add will help you decide which side of the fence you stand on. Okay. And you can't mention her without mentioning Rick Osuna, who is a controversial person in the Amityville story altogether as well. He's not part of the family, but he's someone that researched this entire thing after. If you've ever tried to research DeFeo family or Amityville or have watched a documentary, even other people covering this, even though they won't say that they believe him, they still use his fucking research research. (laughs) because he did the work right ultimately he offered a story that most do not hold to be true but I think I'm starting to see just some people like lending to his research and agreeing with it okay but there's a reason why a lot of people won't come on a podcast or you know write an article and say something to certain extents because of legal okay reasons so it's another case where we question motive and who done it type situation and it's a mystery today in a lot of ways. Those are the best kind of cases. Okay, so I'm going to get into it. Prior to the murders, Amityville was just another small affluent Long Island neighborhood in New York. Okay. It was first settled in the 1600s and its name means friendship. It is nestled along the South Bay. Priorly part of Huntington Township, it became the incorporated village of Amityville in 1894. It was a farming community, heavily focused in the fishing and boating industries. Over time, it became a hot summer getaway for tourists and was once filled with hotels along the waterfront. Some famous people in history once called Amityville home, including Al Capone, Will Rogers, Annie Oakley, and more recently, Alec Baldwin. Oh, okay. I think he stayed there as a child, though, so it's just, but he was there. His family was there. It's not very far away from New York City either. I I do want to visit it, but I'm sure that there's a lot of other little towns, too. What I haven't said is I have always loved upstate New York. I've never been to New York, (laughs) (laughs) but I used to have this Reader's Digest massive, like, thick textbook that my mom got but it was this book about the United States and it Mm -hmm. showed pictures of every state and all the state details that you would need to know and all this stuff and I just remember getting to New York and the New England states and I'm just like 
I, I just want to live there. <laughs> yeah, it's so green and pretty. So up there. I have when it comes to New York, I've always just wanted to go to all of the little cities. Yes. All the villages along the coast, exactly. especially because so. I think Amityville, like you said, is right on the ocean. Yeah. It would be a really cool place to go, but I'm sure that there's other ones like Amityville around as well. So in 1924, a family by the last name of Ireland owned property and sold it to John and Catherine Moynihan, who constructed the home. Okay. It was a large Dutch colonial home, which was typical of the time. The young family of six moved in by 1927. The house is still there today, obviously, Mm -hmm. all but some renovations. They lived there and raised their family. After John and Catherine died, their daughter, Eileen, moved in, but ultimately sold the home to John and Mary Riley in 1960 for $35,000. They lived there until 1965 when the home was sold to Ronald and Luis DeFeo on June 28th, 1965. Okay, so that wasn't that long ago, really. No, that's when they moved in. And then technically the tragedies happened nine years later. So we're doing another story in the 70s. Oh my gosh, we are. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with it's us? It's our era. <laughs> I guess so. We should get our hair cut like the 70s girls. I mean, like I said, I'm already kind of there a little bit. That's funny. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you search um, the home on Google Maps right now, the home is blurred out on the street view. They yeah. even changed, they tried to change the address of the home to 108 Ocean Avenue. But as soon as that got out, I'm like, okay, well, now they know it's 108. We've got the internet now, guys. There's no hiding. You're not going to. But I I understand the families who were not involved in this and like, but they know their history and they're part of the area. Like they just would like to be left alone. So Kendra, don't go climbing fences, please. (laughs) I am going to take a picture. Sorry, family. You might get shot. I'm just kidding. (laughs) They have a big dog. (laughs) Um, So let's get into the DeFeo family because they're crazy. One by one. And I'm going to start with the parents, respectively. That's where the crazy originates always, right? And oh, yes, it does <laughs> in this story. So Ronald DeFeo Sr., or as he was called, Big Ronnie later on, was mm-hmm. born November 16th, 1930, Rocco and Antoinette DeFeo. He was Big Ronnie because he was a big guy later on in his life. And his firstborn son was named after him. So he just became Big Ronnie. When he was younger, he was quite handsome and well fit. He was a popular athlete in high school. I did see a picture of him when he was a teenager. And I did swoon a little (laughs) for the 70s Jessica. Or wait, this is way back when. If I was born in 1950, (laughs) if I was 18 in 1950, I would have liked him. Y'all would have dated. I I just, I get why Luis was like, okay. And he just gave me grease vibes. Like, you know, that type of thing. Luis Marie Brigante was born November 3rd, 1931 to Michael and Angelina Brigante. In many accounts, her mother was called Angela. So it's kind of back and forth. But I don't really actually think I use her name, her first name that much here. As a teenager at 19, Luis met Ronald and was highly attracted to him. She was extremely beautiful herself. And they began a relationship. Her very Italian Catholic parents did not approve of the relationship because Louise became pregnant out of wedlock. Oh, no. They ended up cutting their ties with her. Louise's father was a very prominent man. He became a successful car salesman and opened his own dealership in the late 1950s. He owned and operated a General Motors franchise called Brigante Carl Buick on Coney Island Avenue. 
Okay. They wanted a big future for their daughter. They didn't want her to settle down and be a mother right away, which is interesting, you know, I mean, but yeah. they paid for her to go to an all girls private school. And Louise had originally wanted to go to school to become a nurse. And she essentially threw it all away to be with Ronald. Oh. Louise and Ronald ended up getting married in 1951, despite her parents' approval. At first, you know, their life was very small and they lived in a tiny apartment together in Brooklyn. They had their first child, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. on September 26, 1951. From here on out, I'm going to refer to Ronald Sr. as Big Ronnie. Okay. And I'm going to refer to Ronald Jr. as Butch. Butch was his nickname. Yeah. Okay. And it was given to him actually by his grandfather. So (laughs) Big Ronnie and Butch, father, son. After Butch was born, Louise's parents couldn't stay away. Of course, grandbaby. Yeah, and made amends so that they could be in their daughter's life and their grandchild's life, as they should. Yes. Butch was the only child until his younger sister, Dawn Teresa DeFeo, was born on July 29th, 1956. Five years later, Allison Louise DeFeo was born on August 16th, 1961, followed a year later by Mark Gregory DeFeo on September 4th, 1962. So they've been busy having babies. Busy having babies. And honestly, I didn't know if she wanted to have that many babies. But Catholic life. Yeah, no birth control. Yeah. You're just having them. Big Ronnie's father-in-law, Michael, as he always wanted the best for his daughter, gave Big Ronnie a job at his Buick dealership that included... A decent salary for the time. At this time, all six family members were living in that tiny Brooklyn apartment still. Wow. And over time, especially throughout the trial, which we'll get into later on, it became evident that domestic abuse in the DeFeo home was present from the beginning and a daily fucking thing. Oh, no. So Luis's brother actually mentioned his name is Michael Jr. So a lot of Junior Jr. I'm sure that it was probably back then. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now. Yeah. Prevalent. Big families. He was visiting the family one time and witnessed Big Ronnie physically abuse Butch as a child, like two or three years old. He stated in court, actually, that Butch was crying and Big Ronnie picked him up, punched him in the face and knocked him across the room into a wall and then proceeded to pick up a chair and then (gasps) throw it at him. And it hit the wall above Butch, just barely missing him. Oh, my God. He was a little fucking kid at that point. That's really crazy. In 1963... A very then young and brave Louise was over Big Ronnie's bullshit and his abuse, and she did leave him in 1963. That would be hard to do in 1963, so good for her. She was the main focus of his abuse, oh. and he beat her badly, oh. constantly. I wonder if he learned it from his dad, like yeah, his I family. W- okay, <laughs> you'll see why I can only go so far down the rabbit hole with this story. Yeah. Honestly, but you'll get through this. And if you just think about the parents and then the parents and then the the involvement of all of these people in crime. okay, I could go on forever. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I could tell my family history and Pine Top Lakeside and Snowflake or I could tell this Italian <laughs> family's history. Which yes. one am I going to do? Um, so Big Ronnie upset that she left with the kids. He wanted her back. Of as course. all abusive, he, controlling he men had do. no one to beat on. He did something I'm sure a lot of men wish they could pull off, though. He wrote a song for her, and it was actually picked up and recorded by Joe Williams. What? Yeah. Okay. The song was called The Real Thing, and it was on Joe Williams' 1963 One is the Loneliest Number album. I know One is the Loneliest Number. So I listened to the song, The Real Thing, and at first, like, I was jamming. I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to listen to this for a while, you know, for a few days. But ultimately, the song became very creepy to me. 
knowing of everything that was going on in the family and how this ended. Honestly, I, I wish I could play it. It just ultimately sounded like it was a horror movie song. It was oh, very sweet and I loved it and it was upbeat before. And then just knowing what I know now, I'm like, ooh, that's a good song for a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If you haven't heard it, you can Google it and it'll pop up okay. for you to listen. I'll check it out. I was thinking about playing it here now, but. Maybe we can add it to our socials. Yeah, there we go. So anyway, this song was Big Ronnie's plea to Louise that he loved her and the children. Mm-hmm. He swore he would change and be good. They always say that. Of course, she was impressed by the song and ultimately went back to him. No, girl, no. <laughs> Less than two <laughs> years later, she became pregnant with their fifth child. Oh, now she's stuck. Yeah. John Matthew DeFeo. He was born October 24th, 1965. So at this time, they were still in their small apartment and Michael Brigante, Louise's dad, decided that it wasn't good for them anymore and yeah, not. he helped them get a home big enough for them all and that was the Amityville home at 112 Ocean Avenue. Okay. They closed on that in June of 1965 which I mentioned before so her father got that house for them. That was nice. This home was a big step up for Big Ronnie. Yeah. On the outside now he had prestige you know he loved the home they all did He was looking forward to their life and erected a custom sign outside of their front lawn that said high hopes. So that's how it became the high hopes (laughs) house, house. which was very ironic. If anybody ever puts (laughs) stupid signs like that outside their house, I'm like, you're the devil inside. (laughs) You're asking for some bad karma or something. I don't know. You can put supportive. I love when I go to people's houses and they're like, they support trans. I support black Black lives matter. And yeah. So I like those. But if you're naming your house something that's supposed to be positive and it's just a normal fucking house, it's not like someone's like attempted church or whatever's <laughs> going on. Like, you're going to worry me. So the older school age overcompensating. <laughs> yes. So the older school age children were enrolled at St. Martin of Tours Catholic grade school and Butch went to Amityville Memorial High School as a teenager and up to 20 or 21. Butch worked odd jobs that he was usually fired from because he wouldn't show up. Uh, that's important. It's important. You yeah. Gotta, you gotta show up. <laughs> at, at 21, he was hired by his grandfather at the dealership. So he was pretty provided for, though, you know, as a teenager and all that. He probably didn't take it serious. Yeah. It's good to have families that own businesses if you need a job and you don't want to show exactly. up. He was an errand boy, essentially, for his grandfather. In a way, he was enabled, but... At the same time, he dealt with so much abuse throughout his childhood that I can't really argue much of this part of his life because the abuse from his father was, I don't know, quote, balanced away with a heavy weekly allowance and cars and clothes, you know, so he would get yelled at and punched and kicked. And then his dad would be like, here's money, you know, Uh, he really did have anything that he needed. But to me, he wasn't like a bad kid, but he became that way. Eventually. In school, he was bullied heavily because he was a bit overweight. Okay. And he was criticized by his father for his weight. Uh, Wasn't his dad big? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if he was Um, at the time when he was that young, but he was a big guy. So he was criticized. And to help lose the weight, Butch decided that he was going to take drugs. And he did lose the weight. With what kind of meth? I think it was speed. Yeah. Methamphetamines. He lost the weight. But because of that, he got introduced to other drugs and, you know, alcohol wasn't a new addition to his life in general because his parents were essentially lushes. Yeah. I would probably drink a lot more if my husband abused me. Yes. 
And also drugs and his use were brought up a lot in trial. But honestly, there's not a lot of evidence to prove that he was a heavy, heavy user, despite a lot of people saying so. I'll get into that a little bit later on when we talk about some of the theories as to what happened. Alcohol more than drugs seemed to have more of an effect on him. With alcohol, he was described as having like this Jekyll and Hyde response to it. And he would get belligerent, but he also wasn't known to be the one who started trouble. Okay, He would just intervene or be a part of it if it happened Mm -hmm. and when I heard people talking it was kind of like he was sitting there maybe drinking something and then two other guys would get in a fight and he'd be like "Ooh, I want to join (laughs) he's like that looks (laughs) that's kind of how I took how people were explaining him but they were like he never went around like trying to doing this yeah so Butch met Geraldine Ravondo in 1969 when she was 23 and he was 17 so, oh, bit of like an age gap. Older ladies. He was a very tall guy, though, and she was actually quite petite and small at the time. So I could see how, even in the age gap, like it was, yeah, it wasn't it even worked. seen. She was a musician and a singer at a local bar, and she did not care for him at first. He was loud and obnoxious, and she she just did not like him. He boasted yeah. a lot about being rich, and he even gave himself a different name. He called himself Butch Black. Or something like (laughs) sound more cool. She pretty much told him to go away and she thought he was gross, but he didn't leave her alone. He he liked her. He wore her her down. (laughs) He left her roses one day after a gig. You know, she slowly started to see him and was like, oh, okay. He's not so bad, I guess. He has all these, this bad shit I don't like, but you know, he actually ended up treating her like a lady and he spoiled her, you know, however he could. She met his parents, siblings, and two of his friends, Bobby Kalski and Augie De Janeiro, not too long after and went to the family home to go swimming. Okay. So quick side note on Butch's two friends here, uh, as they're brought up a lot later. Bobby Kalski was a handsome, very fit football player, and Augie De Janeiro looked like he was straight from the mob. (laughs) (laughs) And he sounds like DiGiorno pizza. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bobby and Butch were really close, and they were opposite in a lot of ways, because Butch was still a little chubby, and he didn't really have the charisma that Bobby did. Bobby's nickname was The Brick. Oh, okay. Everybody's got to have a nickname. Everybody. I'm sure that they all did. They're all gang names up there. Yeah. He did work with his father in masonry, and he helped to fix some things on the DeFeo house. And he was around a lot. He ate dinner with them, stayed over, and he was witness to the abuse that Butch dealt with on a regular basis. Mm. So... You know, I think that bonded them. Maybe, maybe his, dad maybe was to an extent, yeah. His dad also did the same. Who knows? I mean, was this just accepted? I think more that was so back part then. of the time that yeah. you can beat your children. Even school people can beat your children in a right. way. Right? It's how you kept them in line. Exactly. Like he's the man of the house. This yep. is his house. Everybody falls in line. But there is a point where it's to an extreme. Yeah. To where I'm sorry, no. Meaning there wasn't anything quite illegal about doing it back then. No, nobody. But that would doesn't say mean anything. everybody's not living in absolute misery and tired of having imagine. bruises and broken bones and shit. And being so, afraid all being the afraid time, all the your, time in your house, which is supposed like, to be. Like, is he going to be nice right now, or is he going to hit me? Like, right, you're always you walking on eggshells. At the time, the house was painted black with white trim and white windows. It's quite striking, honestly. Mm-hmm. Inside the house, it was carpeted with deep red carpet everywhere. Wow, it sounds like a real goth Seriously. dream. <laughs> Big Ronnie used yacht paint to paint the house because he thought it was going to help with being by the water and everything. Oh, yeah. I love 
black. I would love to have a full black house. Honestly, yeah, you don't see that pretty often. cool. You know why you don't see it? And I know this because I used to be part of the industry. It fades. No, it's very bad. Think about it. We're in in Colorado, especially oh, heat. the heat. It's going to start to warp anything that's black. Yeah. So black is not a kind color, especially for us, like higher With elevation. Mm-hmm. So I did wonder, like once someone actually bought this house again, if they had to like fix a bunch of wood or something like that, because he chose to paint it black. Yeah, that there was a lot of damage. He painted it black thinking that he was saving helping to keep the house a certain way but because I've worked in the construction industry for a long time and with certain products I was like "Mm, yeah that black's just absorbing all that heat into the wood exactly Mm -hmm. so anyway back to Geraldine she's coming over they're gonna do this little pool party she's meeting other people and she recognized almost immediately how beautiful Louise was the mother Uh but she questioned almost the entire day because it was a hot summer day and she was covered head to toe. Oh, hiding bruises. Yes. Or she could have been like me and had a sun allergy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, who knows? Maybe she just was protecting her skin, anti-aging. But she, yes. But probably bruises, unfortunately. had many bruises from Big Ronnie all over her body and that day including a black eye she was wearing very large sunglasses. sunglasses yeah during a documentary style film by Rick Osuna who I mentioned Geraldine recalled a time when they were all having a good time in the pool and Big Ronnie threw a cherry bomb in the pool what he thought it was <laughs> funny but it scared everyone and uh, yeah. she almost left so Butch pissed that essentially he's like dude you ruined my time with my my girlfriend girlfriend in the pool (laughs) he tried to do the same thing but big brownie did not appreciate that and he chased butch out to the front yard and beat him Mm. so you know he can do it but no one else can you know that's how it was played out so after that and knowing the abuse of the mother geraldine actually was like well shit like i don't want to end up the same way so she actually was questioning if butch was gonna be like his dad and uh, yeah that's a good because question. she actually had just left a marriage an abusive marriage because she had two little girls and she didn't want to deal with that again but ultimately and still to this day butch was never like that with her that's good so he was a some kind. cycles can be broken yeah but then now he's blamed for something much horrible later okay, on okay, so well i don't then. know <laughs> so, so don't love him yet i don't know if you can ever love him but you i can some, again i don't know you can empathize with his upbringing. you can definitely empathize with some points and then even question everything else later on mm-hmm. but she is saying to her he was a good guy okay he cared about her he took care of her he never hit her there was nothing like that ever But abuse was normal in the Tefeo house. For the most part, they all isolated themselves in their own rooms. But when they were together as a family, something almost always happened. Yeah. Thankfully, the younger kids, Allison, Mark and John, from what I can tell, weren't included in the physical abuse from their father. There is one account of it that I'll mention a little bit, but it seemed like it was something that Big Ronnie brought about at at a certain age or when the children started to defy him when more. they hit teenagers probably probably exactly with the exception of butch remember he's been beat up since yeah, he was a baby butch was his yeah he was always after butch and his mother and then eventually dawn did come into play because she was the next oldest as she okay. became a teenager big ronnie really demanded a lot from his family after what she had been through louise the mother over time well she gave up She became numb to it all. She didn't stand up for the kids much. 
because it would just result in her own beatings. But the kids, especially Butch, he started to really resent her. He started to blame her for a lot of the things that happened because she allowed the abuse to continue and didn't protect the kids. Oh, that's a hard situation. Very hard. Because she can't speak out against her husband because it just means more beatings for her. I I know. Overall, the DeFeos were unhappy. Yeah. They were a very dysfunctional family. So before I get into this more, though, I have listened to so many accounts of this. And in a lot of it, the abuse is never even fucking mentioned. Are you kidding? Like Butch is talked about as this entitled, enabled teenager who just got everything he wanted. And like his family took care of him and how this and that and that. And, you know, at first I was like, the way I'm presenting this, I'm like, okay, well, I was like, well, maybe the argument is that Butch made up the abuse. But no, it was even part of the trial. Everybody knew about the abuse. So with the exception of some people, obviously, they tried to hide it more and da da da. But a lot of people knew about this abuse. But some people are only calling Butch this crazy guy. And I'm like, there's a reason. This is I just think, honestly, unfortunately, back then it was just part of the time. And they didn't question it. It may have been part of the time to get spanked and get what do they call that a switch or whatever and yelled at but at the same time it seemed that he just took this to a fucking extreme yeah like it wasn't a punishment because you did something wrong it was just he wanted to be just a punishment yeah i don't have this in here but one time they were all eating dinner and butch dropped his napkin and he like just backed out a little bit to reach down and grab it because you drop your napkin you pick it up and Big Ronnie lost his mind and said, you need to ask for permission to leave the table or oh something along that lines. And he's like, all I was doing was picking up my napkin. And he fucking beat him right then and there. for talking bloody, back, probably. Throwing him to yeah. walls and stuff and then sat down and everybody get back to your food. Like, that's the like, kind of person uh, that Big Ronnie was. And this was witnessed by Bobby Kelsky, who was at that dinner. So anyway, that's the type of person this was. It's yeah. one thing to accept some sort of physical punishment of the time and then versus someone who is just flat out a fucking abusive person he's just looking for reasons to beat this child or his wife i think you'll understand why here in a little bit okay because he not only was abusive but he put them down like emotionally oh he was emotionally abusive as well you know butch was very much a victim in his own right in that house you know they all were his control was a bit crazy i even found that Big Ronnie had a special phone, a red phone that was in the house. Okay. He was the only one that knew the number and he would use this phone to call home. And if Louise didn't answer, you're going to get, you're going to get beat. Like, oh my gosh. He had this special phone that was just to keep tabs on his family. So they were afraid even when he wasn't physically there. There was like a rumor that he thought she was cheating at one point. But of course, those type of people are, that's what they do. Yeah, he's got low self-esteem. That's why he beats and emotionally abuses others. At one point, Big Ronnie was attacking Louise and Don, the oldest daughter, was trying to stop him and Butch had enough. So this is speculation. He grabbed a gun, put it up to Big Ronnie's head and pulled the trigger, but it jammed. Oh, no. And he could have killed Big Ronnie right then and there and probably would have spent some time in jail, but it was under duress and it was to protect the rest of his family. There's a chance that if he was able to kill Big Ronnie in that way, honestly, and it's a shitty thing to start saying it like this, that the story would have unfolded much different for everyone else. The children would have grown up. Everybody would have gotten away from the abuse. I don't know. Maybe in another timeline, it happened that way. Yeah, another universe. I'm not condoning death, but at least the kids would have had a chance to grow up. But like I said, this story 
it's a bit of speculation because some say if that actually happened, that uh-huh. big Ronnie would have turned around and actually killed Butch. Yeah, or beat him into an inch of his exactly. life. Exactly. So some people are like, no, 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 no way that Butch yeah. attempted that and, and then lived. he lived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it's brought up a lot. Okay. That as a reason that see Butch was a bad guy. He already tried to kill everybody or whatever. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to say that. So two families, the Ganjatanos and Nanowitzes, were interviewed for Rick Osuna's documentary. And I think their testimonies of the DeFeos over the years give another layer of insight into what the family was like and interesting facts about all of the family members. Uh-huh. Gloria Ganjatano was a family friend. Her and her husband, Pat, met them through football. Mark DeFeo began playing football at a young age. He was kind of a big Ronnie's pride and joy. Okay. He was really pushed into football. Mark and the Gangitano's son, Anthony, who played football on the same team, became really good friends. And the Gangitano family became sort of an extended family. Okay. They also had five children and they were all close in age. So they just did things all mm-hmm. together all the time, and including staying the night in the DeFeo home. They were with the DeFeos so often, sometimes six days a week because of like football practice yeah. and then coming home and doing it more and the parents hanging out while the kids were together. Honestly, it sounds like a cool situation, yeah. but it didn't end well. Okay. At first, Gloria thought Big Ronnie was a nice guy, very mm-hmm. generous, mm-hmm. helping with the team and having them over a lot. Roger Nonowitz was another close friend. His wife, Lene Nonowitz, was very close to Louise. She actually started working as a housekeeper for the DeFeos, but she became very close to Louise over a six-year period of working there. Roger remembered catching on pretty quickly that Butch and Big Ronnie, that with them there was some kind of tension, but he noticed that with his mom, he felt love, like there was a better relationship with his mom, Mm -hmm. and he felt that he was always like a really good brother to his siblings. There was talk from both families that during the time they knew Big Ronnie, once they became closer to him, Big Ronnie started to speak about having abilities. 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 A knowing that he was blessed with foresight and information. He claimed to know scores on games that didn't happen yet Mm. or tragedies that were going to happen. Specifically, that he was in direct communication in some type of way with St. Joseph. He claimed to see auras. He was very open about his beliefs and his special gifts. Most of the time, the families would just write it off and find him a bit silly. Yeah. Just like listening to entertain him because he was such a generous guy and a friend and... (laughs) But they no, never like took the, him seriously. Yeah. I'm thinking St. Joseph might pick someone different to communicate through, but that's just my thought. <laughs> we can't judge. <laughs> he claimed to be at the actual crucifixion. Oh. Yeah. That's, wow. that's okay. big Ronnie. That's a big claim. Yeah. If you stayed the night on Saturday and woke up at their house on Sundays, you did have to say the rosary with them. With big Ronnie's belief that he was touched, he ended up reaching out to a priest in Canada for confirmation and guidance. Turns out this guy was in it for the money because Big Ronnie would give him a lot of money and then he would turn around and tell him what he wanted to hear. You know, that priest wanted money. The priest. The priest. And he would tell him, oh, yes, you know, you do have visions and St. Joseph is your best friend. And he's like, give me another $20. I'll tell you more. (laughs) (laughs) He told him he had psychic abilities, including predicting disasters and such. 
Ronnie took his word and told others and became somewhat delusional of his special abilities. Yeah. He placed big statues in his front lawn, including St. Joseph, and he would pray to them outside, sometimes in nothing but underwear for all his neighbors oh, to see. Oh, that's sexy. So he became just very involved. In so it sounds like he's kind of losing He's losing touch. touch. But yeah. he, he's also having this religious person that's like, oh, yes, I anoint you. Yeah. This is true. So what do you do? I mean, we're here for <laughs> spiritual stuff. And right, you're being, right. But knowing what he does on the daily to his family, I'm like, but do you deserve that? I don't know. Are we, we've or talked about this before. Or is he just trying before. to make up for it? Like a lot of people who do bad things show up at church every Sunday to repent. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. Maybe Big Ronnie had a head injury when he was younger. And Possibly. instead of being a serial killer, he turned out to be an abusive asshole and now is having visions yeah. and thinks that because, he has abilities. Mm-hmm. Who knows? They started to recognize not only his delusions, but Big Ronnie's need to be in charge. He would get upset over the oddest of things and with friends. Gloria Gangitano's son got a concussion and she took him to the hospital and Ronnie was really upset with her that they didn't tell him first. Uh, Like, yeah, like, okay. Uh, There was this other time that the Gangitanos went on a trip with the DeFeos to St. Joseph in Montreal, Canada. Okay. That's where his priest lived. And they were enabler. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) His enabler. They're just everywhere. (laughs) It's all about the money. They went on a tour with another priest while they were there to see the property. And while doing this, so this is like Louise and Gloria, while doing this, Ronnie was getting really agitated at the women's just reactions to the priest saying something because they'd be like, oh, yes, you know, or whatever. And Gloria said that he would just be like, I already told you this. I already said that. I'm better than him. He was just like jealous and really frustrated (laughs) that they were even attempting to listen to someone else other than him. It was she was like, it was really fucking ridiculous. And all that same trip, the two couples were stuck in a snowstorm at one point and Big Ronnie was driving and he decided to let go of the will on the hill. Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) That the angels will drive. Or something to that extent. And everyone was terrified. Uh, Yeah, as they should be. I mean, thankfully, they didn't crash. But at that point, she was like, I just couldn't fucking wait to get home. (laughs) Like, I was just done. You're like, this guy lost it. And it was actually this trip and everything, seeing him get really irritated with Louise and just everything about this. It seemed that he took anything he was frustrated about and took it out on Louise. And she started to question if, you know, what is their relationship like in private? Hell. Yeah. That's what it's like for, or at least for Louise. So she started to worry about Louise. But even with all that, they didn't know about the physical abuse, not directly, these two couples. But the neighbors knew. They saw everything. They heard the fighting Mm -hmm. from inside the house and outside. Arguments and fights would happen in the back and the front yard for neighbors to hear and watch. Often Louise would come out yelling at him to get inside because she was embarrassed, knowing full well that getting in his way and defying him meant that, okay, well, he's going to come and beat me now. Right. Because he would be out in his underwear praying to a statue on his front lawn. Yeah, that's embarrassing. This is a big guy. Can you imagine just like, <laughs> he just bent over in his tidy whities <laughs> No one wants to see that. <laughs> no, I don't know. No. Praying to St. Joseph. and Even St. Joseph is like, put a shirt just on. Just put some pants on at least. I appreciate your commitment. <laughs> I appreciate your commitment to me, but I need you to wear pants. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Anyway, it's thought that Big Ronnie's issues with violence and needing to get the attention from everybody 
was from him not quite living up to his own potential. You know, his father-in-law, Michael Brigante, he was very generous. Yeah. He doted on his daughter, his grandchildren. Well, Big Ronnie would be nothing without his father-in-law. His father-in-law bought him the house, gave him the job. He would have been a complete... He wouldn't exactly. He wouldn't have the money. He wouldn't have his house. Brigante even took the kids shopping. He spoiled them with clothes, jewelry. He even bought their food. Like he would buy the meat and everything for the family. Yeah. He had an inferiority complex to his father-in-law, basically. Of course. I mean, he paid $50,000 to have the family portraits painted, which is a thing. So this family, Mm. they commissioned these special family self-portraits, right, Mm -hmm. of themselves. And it costed $50,000. So here's Big Ronnie. He has this big house. He's supposed to be head honcho. But in reality, everything that they had was from Luis's father. Right. Big Ronnie had to show his, quote, I don't know manhood yep. in some way or so another. he beat louise because that's what he could do did the father-in-law know that so his he, daughter was abused it's not completely known some people assume that he knew it to some extent okay but he did not want to lose his daughter and yeah. she had already at times chooses him right so he just knew he needed to do whatever he could to stay in her life so that's probably why he helped him out so much because he yeah. felt bad for his daughter's situation So Michael Brigante was described as a kind, emotional, gentle man, but he had a big job, a job that provided very well. His Buick dealership was the front for the mob. Oh, okay. He was actually being investigated as such, interestingly, at the time of the murders, he was being wiretapped. His partner was Carlo Gambino. Carlo Gambino Gambino, family. Yeah. Carlo Gambino was an Italian American crime boss, and he was head of one of the five families of organized crime in New York at the time. Michael Brigante and Carlo grew up together. I don't have all of the details of went down with everyone. It's hard not to take a huge side turn, like I said, and just do an entire episode or series of all these families. I don't know. Maybe for another time, it would be interesting. Yeah. Because it was really hard to just go and get like one detail I'm trying to find. Because you're like, this is so interesting too. And they're like, look at all this. I know. (laughs) I'm like, not today. (laughs) Like, I don't have time. Focus, Jessica. Focus. Focus. Exactly. (laughs) So Big Ronnie was the financial guy. Okay. His front job was being the general manager, but his real job was to run the books. Mm -hmm. And there ended up being rumors that he was stealing money from his father-in-law since he was the one to doctor up all the books. Yeah. It was suggested that while he was doing that, he found ways to get even more of a cut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is part of the story into the last few days here. But we'll go into that a little bit more. In Rick Osuna's documentary, Geraldine was quoted as saying, Luis used to say that Big Ronnie's God money. I almost went New York there. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> Luis used to say that Big Ronnie's God was money. Okay. And his heart was a cash register. Oh. So that just paints a little picture. So let's focus on the year of the murders. 1974. Crazy shit went down. Crazy shit went down. Always. Always. Should we just like go back for that decade? <laughs> I'm going to make sure. We know where to look now. <laughs> <laughs> I need to make sure my next one's not in the 70s, but I can't guarantee it. (laughs) Just come back as my mom. (laughs) That'd be weird. I don't want to date my dad. (laughs) Ew. I love you, dad. (sighs) At this point, Butch is actually out of the house and living with Geraldine now in New Jersey. Well, at least part time. Big Ronnie was controlling. And even though Butch was 23 at the time. Oh, no. He was made to spend some of his time in the DeFeo home. So he was kind of living in two different places because of the pressure of his dad, 
Because his dad's like, no, you need to be home and not be with this skank who has children, essentially. So this comes into play here in a second as well. So I just wanted to mention that. We talked about Butch, Big Ronnie, and Louise a bit. Let's talk about Dawn. Okay. She's a teenager now. Dawn is the oldest of the other siblings. She was very outspoken and a bit of a rebel herself. She was a young woman coming into her own. She had big ideas and plans, and that was a hard thing to be in the DeFeo family. Yeah, Big Ronnie doesn't like that. Exactly. In late 1973, early 1974, Don met a boy, Billy Davidge. Okay. He became her boyfriend. He was very handsome, very fit. I keep using that word. I don't know what else to use. Ripped. <laughs> <laughs> he was... Washboard. Stacked. Stacked. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to describe men, apparently. Don was a heavier set girl at the time and was really just amazed that he was interested. He in was her. such a hot guy and she, yeah. he was into her, but he actually was. He was genuinely into her. He loved her mm-hmm. and she was head over heels in love with him. And she was 18 at the time. She was just all about him. Mm-hmm. Don was jealous of Butch having got out of the house. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Well, that makes Jealous sense. of their relationship. Yeah. She wanted what they had. He had a life outside of the house partly. Right. And she wanted that with Billy. Billy's family, though, was going to be moving to Florida. His dad got transferred or something. Okay. And that just crushed her. Yeah. She was trying to figure out a way to go with him, to go mm-hmm. be with him. Of course, Big Ronnie was not having that whatsoever. Yeah. And he made life very difficult for Don. This was a huge upset, honestly, for the entire family. It created this another layer of tension in the home. Mm-hmm. Big Ronnie was adamant that Don was going to stay and finish school and that she wouldn't be going anywhere. But no. she was 18 at the time. And so it just became argument after argument after yeah. argument. Teenagers don't like their parents telling them they can't be with someone. No. Dawn started to stand up for herself and argue back, which resulted in her becoming the focus of his abuse that escalated throughout 1974. Knowing that even Butch was manipulated and made to live kind of part-time at the DeFeo home and part-time with his wife, she started to realize that he was never going to let her leave. And if she did, he would find her and bring her back. So she ended up concocting up a plan to stage (laughs) a fake kidnapping. Oh, I mean, that's one way to get out. Which is a risk when your family is part of a mob. Yeah. They're going to kill whoever you said kidnapped you. Come on. Well, thankfully, they didn't. So Michael okay. Brigante was contacted saying that Don was taken and he needed to hand over $5,000 for her safe return. <laughs> it was okay. found out that this was all her doing. And when Michael and a partner drove out to meet the so-called kidnappers and found out that they were young kids, like they literally ripped their ski masks off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't do that with when your family's connected to the mob. I know. Well, it, <laughs> I read that they cried and stuff. The kids? Yeah. yeah. They're like, please don't kill and me. they're like, Dawn wanted this. You know, she really wanted out of the house, you know. Yeah. Not just to be with Billy, but she wanted to leave Amityville. She mm-hmm. wanted to be away from her father. So Rightfully so. Yeah. So interesting side story here. You might take as a bit of evidence later on, I'd say. Okay. Dawn was trying to get out some of her frustrations, and she decided to write a song. Geraldine, if you remember, she was a singer, a musician. Yeah. Dawn approached Geraldine for some help. The song ended up being called The Night the DeFeos Died. <laughs> Before they died? Yes. Okay. Geraldine recalled some of the lyrics because after what ultimately happened, she could never forget it was something like, in the town of Amityville, there were crowds in the street and policemen off their beat. And I heard what someone said, that all the DeFeos were dead. (laughs) So. (laughs) Premonition. There's that. All this time, everything was volatile and everyone was handling it in their own way. 
It was a constant vicious cycle. All of them knew in their own way that the life that they had was not normal and it it was not okay. Luis was escaping through self-medication, pills and drinking, like you mentioned. Although it did seem like towards the end, she was gaining back a little bit of her self-tenacity and hope for a different life. She started to voice her desire to leave Big Ronnie to her close friend, Lene Nonowitz. Okay. She knew that she had support in her parents as well. So there were some thoughts of maybe there's a way out of this. John Matthew, who was the youngest, started to become just a crazy kid, just acting out and running around. Honestly, poor kid. How do you handle everything like that? He was nine at the I was time. I say, how old was he? Yeah. Yeah. He can't process it. No, His because body's like, that's close to my yeah. daughter's age. And I'm like, if she was witnessing multiple abuse multiple every day. Abu- yes. Yeah. No. How do you handle that? Mark was the little football player and he was actually one of the best players on the team. And he was super focused on it. That was his escape, probably. Yeah, he just immersed himself into practicing all the time. And it may have been partially to please his dad, but to distract himself from what his home life was Mm -hmm. like. But sadly, before the murders, he had actually, I think he broke his leg. He had a cast on and he was using a wheelchair at the time. So there wasn't much that he could do to help, to get around. Like he was probably pretty secluded wherever they stuck him. Yeah. (laughs) Type of thing at the time. Allison really kept to herself for the most part. She was a very sweet and shy little girl. She loved puzzles and looking at magazines. She was a very quiet kid, and that's how people described her. But she was fed up with everything going on in the house, and she distanced herself. Yeah. And she stopped having friends come over. Because she knew Mm -hmm. my life's not normal. And she just knew that all of her friends had normal family, and she didn't. She had crazy town. Butch became very interested in guns at this point and mm-hmm. had a couple. Okay. They were taken away at some point because he got in trouble. And that was, you know, his punishment. Although he did end up getting them back later on. They always do. Before the murders, <laughs> which tells me a couple of things. I doubt Butch attempted to shoot Big Ronnie. Okay. Why would you give your son back guns that he tried to kill you with or whatever? Yeah. Going back to that other story. You're right. And then also... He was 23 years old at the time, and it just seems a little old to still be being punished like a kid. Like, I'm going to take your toys away. I don't <laughs> know. Take your it, guns was, away. Yeah. it was just a little strange. But he was forced to come back to the house still at 23. Exactly. So he wasn't that just a shows normal. the power that he was afraid the father of had. Yeah. Dawn was described as becoming somewhat of a female version of her father in a way. She just was really pissed off, and she was constantly yelling. She was not in a good place. She wanted out, and she was stuck there dealing with everything that she didn't want to be a part of. Yeah, that's a rough spot to be in. And from the accounts, it seemed like she was the one that really found the confidence to constantly speak up to him. And he didn't abuse her. He did. He did. did. Oh, he he started to. That's right. But she didn't care as much. She's like, fuck you. She's like, hit me. Come on. Yeah, Yeah, that was her type of attitude towards it. In 1974, because of the heat that Michael Brigante was receiving from the police some dirty cops and other political strife, he was considering closing the dealership. This was not good for Big Ronnie because that was his money. He has nothing else. That was the only way he made money. Under scrutiny at the time was also Big Ronnie's embezzlement of Brigante's money. Mm. Luis became suspicious of it. Butch knew about it. And it was getting back to Brigante. And if you think about it, he was actually stealing from the mob. Oh, not a good person to steal from. He had a grandiose plan of stealing all he could and buying property up in Canada. And he was planning to move everyone there. Okay. I don't know. Maybe to be closer 
to St. Joseph and his priest and to run away from the mob. <laughs> well, it was rumored that he wanted to start his own branch and finally be the big guy. Oh, okay. So Butch and Geraldine became pregnant at the end of 1973 as well. Big Ronnie did not approve. Yeah, you think she's a skank. Yeah, because she was married previously and already had two kids. And she had the audacity to leave an abusive husband. Right. (laughs) Being that DeFeos were devout Catholics, it really just made Big Ronnie angry. And it was actually him that forced them to get married, even though he didn't like her. Because she was pregnant. (laughs) Exactly. I just love how he, you know, cherry picks what is important in the Catholic religion while he beats his children and wife. Come on, doesn't everybody? I know they always cherry picking. Yep. Uh, Stephanie DeFeo was born August 21st, 1974. Now, having three kids of his own, technically, and just fucking over dealing with his dad, Butch started to see a life for himself. He was studying to pass the post exam to become a mail carrier so that he could provide for his family alone and have a quiet life. Good for him. So I want to take the time here to elaborate a little bit more on why Geraldine DeFeo is such a controversial person in this story. Her involvement is so interesting because no one knew about her really. Okay. Like nationally and like at the beginning of this, at the time of the crime and after. Not the immediate family, but the world, right? Everybody uh-huh. who is focusing in on this family. She was never mentioned in the trial or brought up during the time, but she came forward to help set the record straight Okay, later on. She approached Rick Osuna, who she knew was researching and writing about the murders and the Amityville horror plot and everything. And she she called him out on several things. And over the course of a year, they put together the story truthfully. She never wanted any money. She just wanted the truth to be told. Even if in the end, Rick decided that Butch was to blame for it all, she wanted him to do that. Okay. She wanted the truth out there and knew that she knew way more than what others did. And... She had this inside look. To well, yeah, the she was there. She was Butch's wife and yeah. she was the mother of his daughter. Right. Too. So I find it interesting because so many people deny Geraldine's existence at the time of the murders. Why? You'll understand yeah. why. Okay. But she knew things no one else knew and led Rick Osuna down a path to find out even more about those things. And some of those things are freely mentioned in articles and other documentaries. Like I said, things that Geraldine was the one that brought to light. And no one else. No one knew. Things that were confirmed. And yet those same people using her testimony deny her existence during that time. Essentially saying, no, they're just a fucked up thing. Like she met him while he was in prison. They got married and they're crazy people. And she actually was not part of that. So there's a reason why no one knew of her and why her story took a while to come out. She was a very real person. Sadly, she's passed away. But she and Butch married shortly before the murders but had been together several years. Like I mentioned, they had a daughter together. It was her third child, but the baby wasn't registered as most babies are. Okay. So that's part of it. Not legally anyway, from what I could tell Mm -hmm. and what people could find after the murders. And their marriage wasn't found legally. So for a long time, the story was dismissed as rubbish. Okay. Still today. When researching for this case, so many articles mention her write her off because of this legal proof that they couldn't find. But just like the DeFeo family, Geraldine had her own mob ties. Oh. She was of the Genovese family in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. which I found interestingly enough that Butch's uncle, Big Ronnie's brother, was involved with the Genovese family as well. So just just mob ties like all over the fucking place. (laughs) And they were considered rival families. Okay. So we have Louise, 
and Big Ronnie, Louise with ties to Gambino and Ronnie with ties to Genovese, and then the same for Butch and Geraldine. Okay. Their relationships became this like mixture of the two, but at two different levels, I'd say. Anyway, she claims that when the murders happened, she was tipped off that they may claim that she had involvement. No. Butch never brought her up to keep her and the children safe. safe. Yeah. And because the mafia was very much an imposing force at the time, that they did something to get rid of evidence of their marriage. To protect her family, probably. Yes, to protect her. But about 12 years after the murders, Geraldine and Butch came forward with evidence of their marriage in 1986. Geraldine provided photocopies of their marriage license. And a handful of people, if not more, have come forward to confirm their relationship and Geraldine's involvement at the time. So I'm not sure why it's still being questioned anymore. Maybe just people not going further into the research. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But without those legal slips of paper, you're just not a person, I guess. Something like that. Like we've talked about every single episode we've done, there's always some kind of inconsistencies in our research that you have to like. Oh, it's just wade through. It's just tons, tons. I was even listening to someone I won't mention because I really, really enjoy their content. But I could tell that it was just pieced together last second because I'm like, I really don't take you as the type of person who would argue this or argue that. Right. And so you never know. Even now, like I was like, do I have the time to cover this story? Right. Because you wanted to make exactly. sure. Exactly. Was- so you never know what you're going to end up missing or maybe what someone else came up with and was able to debunk that or whatnot. Right. So we're all just doing the best we can, I guess. Yes, here. exactly. But almost everybody that I found does not consider Geraldine a part of the story. Okay. But you do. And I'm glad you brought her up. Very much. And I watched her talk for hours. She, to me, is a very believable person. Yeah. Okay, so back to it. We're in November of 1974. It seems that all the adult people in this family outside of Big Ronnie wanted out of this family situation. Uh, Yeah. Louise started speaking to Lene about something that was going to happen so that no one had to deal with Big Ronnie again. Mm, Okay. She was hinting that something was going to happen to him. Don wrote this song about her whole family dying. And Butch wanted to focus on his young family so that he could just finally be alone and live a normal life. No more dad. Yeah. (laughs) But for Louise, it got darker than that. Killing Big Ronnie wasn't enough. She got Valium. And this is documented. She got a lot of Valium and was planning to kill them all except the three younger children. Oh. Because at that point, they all deserved it, she thought. (laughs) And, you know, that they were all too screwed up. I was about to say they were a lost cause. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Geraldine mentions that this was brought up to her and Lene and told Geraldine to keep the kids away that day or whatever. Okay, nothing happened of that. But now Louise is starting to have these visions of what life would be like or not at all if they could end it. On the other hand, Big Ronnie found out about Michael Brigante and Carlo Gambino knowing about his embezzlement. Mm -hmm. And he instructed Butch to go murder his grandfather. Oh. (laughs) Butch refused. Yeah. He loved his grandfather. (laughs) He's like, I like that guy. His grandfather had done everything for them. Everything for them. Instead, he told his grandfather about Big Ronnie's plan. Oh, no. Ronnie found out about that. And it was said that he went and cut his son's brake lines what as revenge for not following through with it what he told his son to do okay it's getting real crazy and it, i didn't write this down but there was some story about how butch was actually like driving into this area and he couldn't stop and everybody well, yeah. was just like watching him and he ended up being able to coast coast the <laughs> car safely and whatever 
Briganti found out about this too, and then he pulled Butch and Bobby Kelsky in because Bobby Kelsky was involved in all this mob stuff too. Okay. Um, and to devise a plan to kill Big Ronnie. So it's just like <laughs> everybody, let's just like, everybody's trying to kill everybody. <laughs> exactly. But for one reason or another, that hadn't happened yet. Like okay. it was in the plan. It was a little crazy. There's just so much going on in this family. But it was still like this to be done. I don't know. It was part of the to do list at some point. <laughs> kill so-and-so each person had a different name (laughs) so dawn you know she's losing her shit she was sincerely worried that her father was capable of hurting her and her boyfriend yeah if she tried to run away with him butch was worried that his dad was going to find out about his plans to become a postman (laughs) and louise was ready to end it all (laughs) she's just like fuck it i'm done there was one incident at a point that made everything worse on november 1st of 1974 butch was given the task from the dealership to go and deposit $19,000. Okay. Cash and checks. Somehow, between the dealership and the bank, that $19,000 just goes missing. Oh, that's weird. Well, he said that he was jumped and the uh-huh, money was stolen, uh-huh. robbed a gunpoint. Big Ronnie obviously didn't believe that. He believed that Butch took the money. Yeah. And he was actually investigated for all of that, too. But I'm like, Big Ronnie? Who's the pot calling the kettle black exactly. right there? <laughs> exactly. That was a level of contention, though, of things that were going on during this time. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dawn's planning her exit. She actually planned with her friend Beverly Nonowitz to go to Florida because Beverly had a car. Okay. Dawn was just ready. Tensions brewing everywhere, every second in this yeah. home. It all came to a head one night on November 12th, 1974, when there was a big eruption in the family. No one was spared. Big Ronnie just lost it on okay. everyone. He started with beating Louise. Don tried to intercept. She was beat up and told that she was never going to leave and that he was going to hurt her and, yeah. and Billy. And even sweet Allison tried to speak up and was yelled at. And even little John got in the way at some point and was hurt. Don decided to go grab a butcher knife and she was going to attack her dad. Okay. Well, it didn't go over well because he like immediately disarmed her. Mm-hmm. And now this part of the story is controversial too because the official account on record is different because Butch wasn't known to be living anywhere but the DeFeo home at the time. Okay. Meaning this part wasn't part of the original account of the night. But Geraldine said this is what happened. At some point, Luis calls Butch knowing that this night it wasn't going to end well. And with the whole knife thing, it escalated Mm -hmm. more than they're used to, I guess. And at this time, he's at his home in Jersey with Geraldine and the girls. And Louise asked him to come to the house and help. So he went, you know, I'm going to go protect my family. When he got there, he found John crying on the stairs and had a little bit of blood on him. Just everyone was yelling when he walked in. He hears his father beating his mother. He runs up and tries to stop it. But at some point when Ronnie like turns around to approach him, he trips over something and falls down. Okay. Big Ronnie. And Butch is just like laughing, you know, <laughs> like, ha ha ha. Like, serves you right. That's what you get. Yeah. But Luis runs and tries to help Big Ronnie. Oh, man. And at this point, Butch is like, he had enough. He's fucking pissed at her. She was literally just being beaten by and him. And now she's worried about and him. And now she's attending to him on the floor. And he was just, he felt completely betrayed by her. Okay. He came to help them. And now she's worried about yes. her abuser. Yeah. A lot but, of psychological shit going on there. Exactly. At some point, everything calms down and everyone goes to sleep. Or so it was presented in court. In the early morning of November 13th, six of the seven DeFeos were murdered in their home 
with Butch the only remaining survivor. Okay. Now I'm leaving out a really big chunk here <laughs> on purpose, how it all happened from yes. that point to that point. And we're definitely going to go over that. But what I want to do is give the outline of what happened like directly after the next day. Okay. A lot of the details in this case actually came out over years with more people coming forward. Mm -hmm. So it took a long time to have more of the story. And even now, no one can be exactly certain what happened that night. But a lot of the controversy in the story is from what was presented in court and what everybody knew back then as the narrative of this story and what has come out since. So that's why I'm going to touch what's been said for a long time first, and then we'll go into more. So the morning after the murders on the 13th, Butch went to work early getting there at about 6.30 in the morning and pretended to question why his dad wasn't at the office, calling home a bunch and making it known that he couldn't get a hold of his family. Lucy Birkin, who had worked there for 14 years, reminded Butch that Big Ronnie was supposed to be at the doctor with Mark and wouldn't be reachable until the late afternoon. So Butch left work early around 2.30 p.m. to hang out with some friends. And then he went to the DeFeo home sometime around 6 p.m. to, quote, discover the family dead. Okay. Butch got in the car and drove really fast to Henry's bar, which was his normal hangout down the street. And he ran in yelling, my parents were shot. Stuff like that. Several people from the bar, including his friend, Bobby Kelsky, got in his car and they all went to the house. Everyone went into the house except Butch. They found his parents dead. But upon searching the other parts of the home, quickly realized that Butch's siblings were also dead. One of the men, Joey Yetzman, called the police from the home phone. Butch refused to go in the home, and by all accounts, he was extremely distraught. He was crying, hysterical. No one questioned his emotions that night. Even No one questioned it. Amityville Village PD arrived on the scene just before 6.40 p.m. to initially confirm what they were being told on the phone. But because Amityville was part of Suffolk County, their police department was called immediately as they had the homicide unit. Mm -hmm. They were quick about everything at this point. Within a half an hour, there were six to eight detectives scouring the streets and taking testimony from all the neighbors. No one claimed to have heard any gunshots. Okay, but they were all, yeah. This is important. Keep that in mind. Okay. With Butch, the sole survivor, all six family members were found lying face down in their beds with gunshots. Okay. The Brigantes were called to come to the home. They didn't know why yet. They were just told to get there. They didn't know that their daughter and grandchildren were dead. Yeah. Around the same time, Butch DeFeo's other grandfather, Rocco DeFeo, showed up. Brigante showed up with his son, Michael Jr., around 720. After detectives questioned Butch and Bobby at the house in the kitchen, they decided that it was best to take Butch against his will to the police department for his safety. As one theory, knowing their involvement in the mob, that they needed to protect Butch, like provide some kind of protective custody until they were able to figure out what happened. Bobby was taken to another precinct as well, initially. Crime scene investigators started their job. In all, they had 11 rolls of film of photos taken. They processed one bedroom at a time. They started with Big Ronnie and Luis DeFeo's room. They were both shot twice. Big Ronnie was sort of haphazardly on the bed, laying face down at an angle with one leg hanging off the bed. He had no sheets on. Luis was face down, but she was covered with a blanket almost completely. Okay. Next up was Allison's bedroom. To me, she's the saddest, to be honest. She was shot in the face. Oh. Yeah. But she was found face down with her hands like under her pillow up by her head. You know, okay. like if you were to be sleeping yeah. on her stomach. So obviously she Somebody was Somebody placed her. 
Um, and then to the boys' room, Mark and John, they shared a room and they were both lying face down. They were both clutching a pillow mm-hmm. and they were shot in the back. Last was Don DeFeo and she was in the third floor attic room. Okay. So like in the pictures of the house, it's mm-hmm. that window that's way up top. That's yeah, that was her room. Very featured. That was her room. She was face down and shot in the back of the head. Okay. While Butch is at the Suffolk County headquarters, everyone in the neighborhood is out. Reporters are there. Everyone was outside the DeFeo home waiting for answers to know what happened. And one by one, the body bags started to come out. No one knew how many people were dead. Okay. So it was like one, two, Everybody's just three, watching. Yeah. Four, five, six. A really sad part about this is one of the kids fell off. Oh. Yeah. They fell off of the stretcher. Oh, my God. I'm like, poor babies were just murdered. And yeah, it was a really horrible scene. Someone said that there was like this collective gasp of, <gasps> I'm sure, you know, yeah. I don't even know why I'm mentioning that, but it was just a sad just part of the talk about the horror of the out. scene. Yeah. Yeah. So Butch was questioned all night. He was very cooperative the entire time. He suggested a name, Tony Mazio, a hitman from the mob that he thought would want to hurt his family. Other accounts said the name was Louis Fellini, but based on police documents that I saw in a documentary, it was listed as Mazio. Okay. During this time, it wasn't until about 11 p.m. that Geraldine found out that something had happened in the DeFeo home. Her neighbor told her to turn on the TV. Okay. Telling her that the whole family is dead. Everyone in that house is dead. So she drove to Amityville. She had a hard time getting up to the house because there were just so many people people outside. She had no idea at this time if Butch was part of the people that were dead, but she saw Brigante and she ran to him. So the grandfather and she calls him grandpa and everything that she talks about. He remained a big part of her life until his death. Okay. At some point they offered Butch a cot to sleep on that other cops used to use in the office because it was getting pretty late into the morning at that point. Butch fell asleep. He fell asleep thinking he was free and believed that he was protected. Mm. At around one in the morning, the autopsies began of all of the DeFeo family members. After some digging, the cops found that Tony Mazio wasn't in town, so he had a solid alibi. Okay. Meanwhile, ballistics was combing the scene after the bodies were removed, and it was determined that the shots were made by a 35 caliber rifle. One detective was in Butch's room and discovered two gun boxes in his closet, and one was for a 35 Marlin rifle but there was no gun to be found. Okay. At 9 a.m. on November 14th, Butch was woken up, read his rights, and handcuffed. They decided that he was their guy. Mm. More questioning went on and on, and the detectives, or so they said, said that Butch started talking badly about his family, that his mom was a horrible cook. (laughs) Don played her music too loud, and Mark and John were little filthy animals, etc. Okay. The detectives were trying to get Butch to admit being in the home at the time of the murders, because remember, his his original testimony is that he went into work early right, yeah. at six or so, which would mean that he was in the home getting ready around four or five, getting ready to leave. Finally, they got Butch to admit that the murders could have only taken place between like two and four in the morning, Okay, which places him there at the yeah. time. They really wore him down until he finally confessed that it was him, which we will argue quite a bit later on. Okay. 
they were trying to figure out how all of them were laying face down. So they thought that maybe Butch had drugged them all during dinner because Butch mentioned not wanting to eat his mom's horrible dinner. Right. But it didn't pan out. The autopsies showed absolutely no, no drugs. No toxicology. Okay. They had extensive tests done and there was nothing in any of their systems like that. They did end up finding the gun because of Butch's, quote, so-called confession mm-hmm. <laughs> that it was located at the Richmond Ocean Avenue dock. They claimed he drew a diagram of where to find it, which he argued never happened. Okay. This will come back later. He also told them where he disposed of his clothes, some bloody towels, the rifle holder, a handgun holster, and casings down the sewer drain on his way to work that morning. So Butch is in jail now, and they have the murder weapon, Mm -hmm. or so they think. They think, yeah. So remember, this is just, I think we're now into like the second day after the murder. So there's a lot happening all at once. Yeah. Monday, November 18th, was the wake for the family at St. Martin of Tours in Amityville. Okay. Over 1,000 people showed up. So the whole town? (laughs) Yeah, it was a pretty (laughs) small town. Six coffins were in a half circle lined up, three adult size and three child size. It was all open casket. What? Yeah. I don't understand that because Don and Allison were shot in the head. So it seemed very odd. Gloria Gangitano, which is the, you know, the family friend, she said that their all of their faces were like really blown up. No one was recognizable. Do that. It was horrible for her to see. Yeah. And she said just a lot of people were nauseous, that they were getting sick and they nearly fainted. Everybody's crying. It was a thousand people. Like it was just kind of. That's really odd. Quite the scene. Children of a certain age were not allowed to attend. So I think it was up to a certain grade level. That was hard for some of them. I heard some interviews later on that they felt that they were cheated out of saying goodbye to their friends. But whoever decided that, honestly. Good decision. Yeah. You don't want to see your friend's face Yeah, they don't need to have those images in their head. No. Oh, my God. All six were laid to rest at the St. Charles Cemetery in East Farmingdale, Suffolk County, New York. The same day, Butch DeFeo was formally charged with six counts of murder and held without bail. Right. So going back to the night it happened, after the incident with the family that night, with everyone fighting, the official account of events that was brought up yeah. was that Butch was in a family TV room that night, early morning, after everyone went to sleep, okay. watching a movie hmm. called Castle Keep. Apparently, okay. it's an old World War II movie. It was a violent movie, and many people argue that in Butch's state, on drugs and alcohol and being all tense from the fighting crap in his mind, that after watching the movie... He was inspired or mentally agitated enough to go grab his gun and commit the murders that night. Okay, that feels like a stretch. So not planned, but rather a rushed judgment call to move forward quickly with murdering all the members of his family. Okay, so a movie inspired that? Yeah, I mean, have you ever watched a movie and you're like, that's it? I gotta go kill my parents now. I'm done. I gotta kill everyone I know. I'm totally inspired. I mean, these guys killing each other in another country. And that just, that means I should kill my family. <laughs> it's speaking to me right now. Uh, so a lot of the accounts describe Butch as a heavy, heavy drug user, which we kind of touched right. on. Speed, coke, heroin, weed, alcohol, etc. And even Butch says that he was into drugs pretty hard. However, he still functioned pretty well. And despite what some people say, he was really well liked. By yeah. a lot of people. According to Geraldine, when he was home, he was present and he was not incapacitated all the time. Like so many people want to say about him. 
Even one of the homicide detectives of the case recalls hearing of such drug use, like specifically heroin. And he okay. asked, but show me your arms. You know, he's expecting. Yeah. Track- well, if you're such a heroin addict, it should be there. But he found no marks and he had no scarring. So. And um, heroin doesn't make you go kill people. Heroin makes you lay on the couch and I think a lot out. of the ones that he would use too was more like that. Yeah. More the type of let me forget this bullshit. Yeah. And he took the speed to stay thin, right? Yeah. He was. Yeah. So that was like taking a diet pill, which I've heard of yes. people doing that. Yeah. So who really knows? But I don't see heroin as an every now and then type of drug, you know, based on the testimony of. There's a couple of doctors that were interviewed, and I'll bring up a couple of times, Dr. Puckett and Dr. Hickey. They don't see how Butch could have been a junkie really yeah. at all. It wasn't something that they, from what they know, that his father probably would have put up with. Yeah, and heroin's such a strong one, too. Like, everyone knows yeah, and you, if you're a you heroin user. You can't hide it. That's what I'm saying. Like, you're strung out, and, and it's so addictive. Like, he would... I know you can't just be like, yeah, Friday, you can't I'll function do that. <laughs> and be a heroin user. Really? I don't think you can. Yeah. So from what I could tell and the people who actually knew him, he didn't seem like an out of control junkie that everyone was trying to paint him as. Right. Because right? that was a big part. And still today, when you go and read everything that everybody puts out there, they're just like, he's a fucking junkie and this and that. So that's not what I gathered. Yeah. And even in an older interview of the murders, there was a reporter outside interviewing some kids, like some, I don't know, they were older teenagers or maybe older than that. Yeah. And they were in front of the Amityville house. And these guys said that they didn't know him to use drugs, like at all, actually. And that he didn't go out looking for fights or causing issues. But if he saw a fight or something going on, that he would just jump in. <laughs> like uh, yeah. I he kind of said he would help a person. He wasn't afraid to fight, but he didn't start fights. These kids, including some other family acquaintances that I'll bring up, the, I think I talked about the Nunnewitzes. Yes. They said that, you know, Butch was just more of a follower, kind of. Okay. But that when triggered or invited into a situation, he would become a part of it. Yeah. Now, in preparing for the trial, for the prosecution, they had Gerald Sullivan, deputy district attorney. He created another unit, a task force within the homicide squad. Interestingly, Sullivan, although for the prosecution, he wanted the case because he believed that there was more than one individual involved. Okay. And he wanted to charge more than just Butch. Interesting. Like he won the whole shebang. It was kind of a career moment for okay. him. He went, yeah, the notoriety. He created a lot of tension between him, you know, the attorney's office and the Suffolk County PD because they worked really hard to pin it just on Butch. Yeah. <laughs> but this stance changes once they actually end up turning to just Butch, mm-hmm. like in the trial. Because they didn't have anyone else. Yeah. In terms of the defense, Butch had several different court-appointed defense lawyers that didn't work out. One of those was Jacob Siegfried, who was hired by his grandfather. Now, real quick, there is an interesting story here because I have heard many, many times from other people covering the case that Butch had asked about his parents' life insurance. Okay. Well, that would be a motive. Right. But it was brought up as a joking matter to a lot of people, you know, calling him names and saying that this alone proves that how stupid he was, essentially, Uh. that his plan all along was to kill his family for their life insurance policies. But Butch claims that he didn't ask about that, that it's the other way around. The cops simply were asking him a question. Uh, And And so it was blown out of a portion. He's not getting life insurance from his siblings, just his parents. 
I think that this is him saying that I didn't ask about that. It was validated by something else that happened. So his parents actually didn't have a will. Mm. But because of that, he was the oldest son. He would get. So he would get it. But everything that they had, because there was no will, it was going through probate. So actually, all of that technically is Michael Bergante's. He paid for all of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> his grandfather approached him and, and was like, sign it over to me. There's nothing you can do with it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll help you get a good lawyer. Okay. And so he did. So he signed away everything that would have been so his. it wasn't about, yeah, money. So I don't think it was ever about money. It's just an interesting thought. But it was brought up a lot that he did it for the money. He did it for the <laughs> money. And I'm like, I don't. I mean, I that is a motive and a lot. It is. But he actually didn't really have to worry about money. No. So his wife is connected to the mob. Everybody and his is. Fam- like, they're going to get money. He was they provided for. Yeah. So Jacob Siegfried is trying to prepare for the case. He requested police reports relating to the case and was denied. Oh. Police wouldn't offer them up. And he even tried to get the judge at the time to grant access to this information. And that judge was claiming some kind of attorney work product statute under New York law and that his defense didn't have the rights to them. Suspicious. So frustrated with the case, Siegfried tried to use the defense of insanity. He brought that to Butch's attention. Okay. Butch wasn't having any of that. Because he's not he insane. Didn't, he didn't <laughs> want to be seen as insane. Yeah. He wasn't. And he threatened Siegfried in some way, either verbally or physically, and Siegfried decided to resign. Oh. At this time, a new judge was in place, and this was Judge Signorelli. Butch was then assigned attorney William E. Weber, like a court-appointed okay. situation. Well, I thought his grandpa was going to get him a good lawyer. That was Siegfried. Did I not oh. say that? Siegfried still gave up, though. He's like, fuck oh. this. <laughs> there wasn't enough money. Exactly. So Siegfried okay. was the good lawyer, and okay. he was good. But every time he turned around... He was hitting brick walls. Okay. They just weren't giving him anything. Okay. And then he's like, well, I can't do anything. So I guess I need to say you're insane. And Butch is like, no, I'm not insane. And so now he is stuck with a court. One thing led to another. And now he has William E. Weber. He's a big dude in all of this. Okay. Just a lot of history throughout the rest of this case. So Weber actually did go to work and it was a good case for his record. Mm -hmm. So everybody wanted some piece of this. Obviously, six family members are dead. He was assigned in July 1975, and this was about four months before it was actually supposed to go to trial. He didn't have anything either. They didn't have the police reports, lab reports, photos. They had nothing. Wow, that seems... But with the new judge, the new judge was willing to do the thing so that he could actually get his hands actually on this Actually build a stuff. defense, yeah. Right. And this judge even approved the county to pay for a private investigator. Okay. Who was Herman Race. Well, the prosecution was not happy with the help that Butch and Weber were receiving and started going after Judge Signorelli uh-huh. to get him off the case. Okay. Because there was some rumor that William Weber and Judge Signorelli had a mutual interest in moving forward in some way on the case. Okay. I guess Signorelli was like campaigning for some sort of other political position. Oh. And Weber was on the campaign or something. Oh, That's what okay. it was said. So, so scratch my backs, I'll scratch yours. Yeah. Kind of and thing. so he was approached behind closed doors and Judge Signorelli ended up removing himself okay. from the case. So that left them without a judge on the case. That's a problem. It is. But so we just got rid of what they thought was 
the situation that would have helped one side. Well, now we're going to do the <laughs> other thing. And now they're going to get a judge that helps just that side. Of course. There can't be anybody right in the middle. <laughs> no. Like, no. you know what a judge is supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> so Judge Stark came on board, who was specifically requested by Gerald Sullivan. Mm. Sullivan wanted him because he was a hanging judge. What's a hanging judge? So a hanging judge is when they're just known for like handing down harsh punishments. Oh, a hanging judge. Like what did I say? That makes sense now. I I don't know what I was thinking. Like a hanging. I'm like, I trust that I might have said it wrong. (laughs) No, that makes sense now. Like he likes to hang people. Got it. (laughs) So Butch went from having this judge that was willing to at least help make sure that he had the information to have a proper defense. Right. To having a judge. Essentially hell-bent on prosecuting. Yeah. Judge Stark did not allow evidence that would have given Butch a fair trial to be admitted. Oh, well, that's helpful for prosecution. Yeah, but they still had Herman Race. Herman Race was a retired detective who was secured prior to the prior judge walking away. Yeah. So Race concluded that there was no way that Butch could have done it alone. He believed that at least two other people were there to help do this. After reviewing crime scene photos, he found two areas where floors were covered in blood, Hmm. including the landing right outside the master bedroom. Now, remember, they had red carpet throughout the house. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, maybe it wasn't brought enough because they're like, well, it's red carpet blood. Maybe people won't see it in the photos and we're just (laughs) not going to bring it up. (laughs) So that means the... Because part of the confusion here is they were all laying face down in their beds. Yes. Shot because they wanted to look like it was done while they were sleeping, but sounds like no one's no. ever been able to explain exactly how all of them are that way, right? Because some of them do appear to be shot exactly in that position. There are a couple that don't, though. Okay, so Herman Race suggested this, but Sullivan argued the opposite, which was interesting because he was the one who set up this separate unit and said that he believed that there was more than one person. To yeah, begin he wanted with, to prosecute more. But he believed that Butch alone should stand trial, regardless of them having anybody else. Okay. The judge ignored Herman's claims about the evidence suggesting multiple shooters or multiple people involved, and it wouldn't change whatever sentence he was going to have. So this judge was like, no, we're moving forward. We're just going to judge Butch alone. But we're talking about six people. We're including children. If it was found that he he only shot one person or two people versus all of them, it Uh would change things. So I thought it was interesting that the judge was like, well, it doesn't matter either way. Because he's going to hang him either way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's one person or six. Even if there's more people involved, like it doesn't matter. He's still Well, maybe he just thinks he's the mastermind behind it either way. For all we know, he was paid off by somebody else. There seems to be right. a lot of shit going on. Yeah, we're dealing with organized time. crime. Exactly. So the trial started October 6th, 1975. One of the jurors, Peggy Gambra, from the trial has spoken up since and offered different perspectives on everything. She was 25 at the time of the trial and Butch was close in age. So it was a very surreal experience for her to go through this. She described Butch as being pretty much withdrawn most of the time, but she didn't see him as this big scary guy that killed six people. Okay. He didn't seem threatening or insane. She could tell that he didn't like Sullivan. Yeah. But he didn't act erratic or anything out of the ordinary. She listened to all the statements from Sullivan, but she was still unsure. 
even the prosecution speculates that Big Ronnie got out of bed after the first shot. Okay. And then said, but shot him again and put him back in bed. But Big Ronnie's a big guy. Yes. <laughs> big Ronnie is a big guy. He was 270 pounds at the time. Yeah. Butch was only about 165 pounds. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Also, the way he was laying on the bed was sideways with one leg sort of off the bed. It kind of argues that as a big guy with smaller people trying to put him back in bed. That's the best they could do. That they kind of would have had to, yeah, like fling him. <laughs> like They're just like holding on to him. And like, that's the only position they could get him up there. Right. Really. That or he was standing and like kind of fell on the bed that way. Yeah. She listened to the abuse and the manipulation that went on in the home. She had been somewhat sheltered her whole life, she admitted. Okay. And she was horrified by the stories that were being told. She called hearing a story from a family friend that Big Ronnie once pushed Louise down the stairs. Oh. And she was shocked by that. It was a situation in which they had a little fight and she was coming up from the basement carrying a basket of clothing and he just shoved her right back down the stairs Asshole. with the laundry. Honestly, at any point over the years, he could have killed any of them with just his daily acts of abuse. Right. At any point, it could have gone too far and yeah. he just got lucky. It's amazing what the human body can withstand. Mm -hmm. And my heart really does just go out to people who are in these situations who are just putting it's up with it. I can't imagine. And you're and so constantly during like some kind of healing in some part of your body. And yeah, you're always living in that fear that something's going to happen. And then, like you said, you're always recovering from yeah. the abuse of, you know, what happened the night before or days ago. And it's just a horrible cycle. And so many people feel trapped in that situation and can't get out. And I think it's very difficult for some people who haven't been in a physically abusive situation to actually understand yeah. what that is every second of the day and to be living in that. And so for her to not only hear it, but then hear testimony from other people and then see, you know, photos, it was just like, oof, like it was just a lot for her yeah. to see. But coming back to the life insurance claim from before, prosecution did try to use that. But she said even her and the other jurors did not buy that. Right. They didn't believe that Butch wanted the money or that he would kill his entire family for the money. And there was never any proof provided. It was just a thing thrown out there. Yeah. Weber, Butch's attorney, attempted to bring up police brutality against Butch during the interrogation. And that was shot down as well. But Peggy Gambra, the juror, she believed that he was roughened up. Mm. She heard the statements from the cops and questioned them. And she believed that just by looking at them, she believed that they were the type of guys to beat people up for answers. Yeah. After weeks of trial... Every time the defense tried to bring up other valid points of evidence, they were just shot constantly down. shot down. Ambria recalls Judge Stark being extremely biased mm. and for the prosecution. Yeah. And every time Weber tried to object, he was overruled. She thought that Judge Stark was very prejudiced and not willing to hear from the defense. Yeah, he'd already made up his mind. Yeah. She also found Sullivan, the dude from the prosecution, to just be a pompous asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She found Weber to be nice, but out of his league. Mm. She said it seemed like he tried really hard to do what he could. He was able to prove some things. He was able to prove that Butch never drew the diagrams of where the gun was thrown. Okay. The cops did. Oh. And that Butch never drew the home diagrams depicting where the bodies were. So that was also something that they claim that he Butch did drew during out. his confession. Yeah. Yes. One of the cops claimed to have never been to the DeFeo house and he couldn't have done it. But then Weber brought in another cop who was actually the cop kind of logging everybody in and out of the house that night. Okay. As more evidence, you know, standing at the door and he was there. <laughs> 
So he lied under oath. He was there. And for the gun, the diver who actually went down to get the gun claimed that he witnessed the cops literally drawing it right in front of him, like on the boat. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they threw it down. And, and then like, what Go they get did <laughs> is they then had butch just in permanent marker like do his initials oh. it wasn't even in the same pen and stuff it was so they so drew totally, it up and they were just yeah. yeah the deputy chief medical examiner dr howard edelman was brought to the stand to present his findings and was asked by sullivan what he thought about butch acting alone he said he couldn't see how it was done alone okay dr edelman later in a documentary with rick osuna recalls he dropped so speaking of sullivan he mm-hmm. dropped questioning after that like a hot potato. <laughs> of course he did. Because he asked an he's like, expert. Never mind. He's like, okay, well, we don't need to talk he's about like, that anymore. Anyway, that was one. nice. <laughs> Regardless of Weber's wins that he was able to accomplish, he did see that their chances were dwindling. And Mr. Weber felt that their only chance, once again, was to push an insanity, insanity. claim. Okay. Remember, Butch does not want this. But there is a reason Weber came up with this last minute, despite the wishes of Butch which we'll get into in more detail here in a little bit because it involves the Lutzes. Okay. Just a little bit about that because it's going to be the last part of this episode when we'll be talking about Amityville Horror. Okay. Okay. And that's the Lutzes? Yes. And it's a massive side turn from what we're talking about right now. Right. But upon experiencing some spooky shit and knowing Weber was on trial with Butch at the present time, the Lutzes reached out to Weber to ask if anything spooky went on in the house prior to them buying it. Oh. Okay. There is an argument that they actually went to him before they even bought the fucking house. So they knew. Yeah. We'll, we'll I, yeah, talk I, I've about heard of some all of that, that stuff. conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. Initially, Weber ignored them, thought they were kooks. And is that a made up word? No, I use okay. kooks all the time. I was just thinking of making up words. And I'm like, <laughs> do I use a word that's not even a word? I don't know. <laughs> I say fudge nuggets all the time. It's two different words, but you know. I think, too, if a made up word is long enough, they add it to the dictionary eventually. I know. We <laughs> should really come up with one of those. That'd be fun. A kook was probably one of those urban dictionaries that finally made it into the real dictionary. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he thought that they were cuckoo. (laughs) But after a couple of times, he started to talk to them and it gave him an idea to claim insanity for Butch. But despite his efforts to bring in witnesses to paint Butch as a nut job. Yes, it didn't work. They were, for the most part, just silly stories Mm. of friends and of stupid boys being stupid boys. Yeah. And that's exactly what Gambria thought. She just laughed at some of them and she's like, well, it doesn't really make me believe that he's insane. Right. He's just an (laughs) idiot. (laughs) But he could have had a moment of insanity. And that's what she was thinking the whole time. Like, he just snapped. Right. And then he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Ultimately, it was Butch's turn to take the stand. His job was to help pull off insanity insanity like okay that was the last thing that they so had. they're like just get up there and act insane exactly he said he heard voices <laughs> he said that someone made him do it mm-hmm. he tried claiming that an unknown presence saint thomas gave him the gun <laughs> saint thomas saint is thomas like i'm tired it. of this guy praying yeah. to me in underwear well here's the funny part <laughs> this dude was completely back and at one point he said he believed it was god no oh, okay and god you know god gave him the gun <laughs> <laughs> God's like, put this guy out of his misery. But sadly, like he was like trying to keep that up. But under Sullivan's cross-examination, Butch just lost it. 
I think he was already super mad with the guy. Yeah. He lost his temper and he yelled, I killed them all. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. I killed them all in self-defense. Oh. That's what he said. And after that, he kind of just sealed his fate. I think he's kind of done. Yeah. He was done with the whole trial. He's like, just put me in jail. Fuck it. (laughs) And then he just says that. He'd rather go to jail than have to keep answering questions. He doesn't really want to be in jail, but fuck. (laughs) He's like, enough already. (laughs) He did kill at least one person, though. So he can still go to jail. (laughs) But anyway, Gambria and another juror were the determining jurors. After Butch's statement, everyone was just ready to end it. Mm -hmm. And they did a silent vote right away. And Gambria and another person were not ready to concede. What the rest thought would take like five minutes because he confessed to them all. It It turned into two days and two nights of deliberation. Whoa. Because she wanted to believe in his innocence. She recognized that the family dysfunction was horrible and was looking at him from like a very human standpoint, really. She wanted to believe that he just snapped. She knew he did it. This kind of brings me back to the whole Scott Filater. Like they knew he did it. Right. But what's the motive? Yeah. So it was enough for her to convict him, but she just wasn't convinced that he knew what he was doing. And to her that, you know, that part mattered. But after a statement and more deliberation, she couldn't get over two things. Okay. The kids. Yeah. And the dog. The dog's dead? No. Oh. Because he said, I killed them all in self-defense. So she couldn't understand how the kids would have been a self-defense Would have been in a situation where he was defending himself right and then the family dog the family dog stood out to her butch hated the family dog and based on testimony the dog fucking hated him (laughs) (laughs) but it was big ronnie's dog and big ronnie even said to him if the dog ends up in the canal you'll end up in the canal did i do that okay (laughs) 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 it's like halfway through So this was big to Cambria because if he didn't know what he was doing, then why would he take the time to go put the dog outside? Mm. If he had just snapped, he wouldn't think to get the dog dog out out of the way because the dog would have defended his So for her, she's like, you hated the dog. Ultimately, the dog is what fucking got you because it would have gone to a hung jury if she did not roll over. Yeah. Even she ended up having to convince the last juror, which was this older woman Mm -hmm. who looked... I saw a rendition or a fake. Whoever played the fake lady who was holding out was very cute. (laughs) But she was going to hold out. She just did not want to. Okay. And even once they convinced her of the dog and she finally said yes, she immediately threw up. This woman did not want to convict at all. So that was a hard thing. But on Friday, November 21st, 1975... Butch DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder. That's a lot. I mean, six. Yeah. A few weeks later, Butch was officially sentenced to six consecutive life sentences with the eligibility of parole in 1999, which he never received. That was the maximum sentence at the time. They did not have the death penalty in New York. So after being sentenced... Over time, Butch started coming out with different versions of what happened. Oh. A mobster did it. Mm -hmm. Don killed his father out of desperation. And then his mother killed the kids. And then... No, I don't know. He killed her. But it was along with other variations. With the exception of the mob hit, which no one believed, in the end anyway, because the mafia was not about killing children. Oh, that's good. At least they have some morals. (laughs) They do everything else. But But in every version that he offered, Don was involved in some way in all of his stories. Okay. So who knows when he actually said certain things and when they were first made known to the public. But there was a letter found written to Brigante, his mm-hmm. grandfather, from Butch in December of 1974, which is less than a month after the murders. 
Butch telling him that it wasn't just me, Grandpa. Like, so not saying everything, but letting him yeah. know it, it wasn't just me. Well, I mean, Don did write a song about... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they all said something. Yes. For all we know, one of the little boys was like, I want to kill my family. <laughs> I mean, everybody would at that point because their family sucked. Yeah. From many accounts, the Suffolk Police Department was crooked and abusive at that time. Mm -hmm. Butch claimed to have been beaten by the Suffolk Police Department while in their custody for nearly 20 hours. He said that the same thing happened to Bobby, too. Of course, the detectives interviewed later deny this. Of course. And they were like, well, the most we ever did was kick his chair uh-huh. <laughs> to just to, to rattle him. <laughs> yeah, we can trust those police guys. Yeah, I don't guys. believe that. We, we know they never lie. It wasn't uncommon that the Suffolk County PD was blamed for beating things out of people. Mm. Interestingly, at the time, they had the highest confession rate in the U.S. No, I'm hmm. sure that's not I a wonder. coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> There were investigations into them finding police brutalities, cover-ups, etc. So yeah, I don't believe that with a six-person homicide, that's when they decide to be nice yeah. and, and not, not rough someone up. <laughs> so it's argued that Butch actually didn't offer up a confession, but rather he was coerced and beat into it. Okay, I believe. He was that. threatened that the beating wouldn't stop until he did, mm-hmm. and that eventually he did give in out of desperation for the beating to stop, and he was forced to write up a statement. That statement ended up being eight pages, which included Butch saying that all six people were shot in their beds and that no one got up. But we know that that's not true. Right. So Geraldine cooperated the abuse. Geraldine was finally able to see Butch six days after the murders. And when she got there, he was bloodied up and he was bruised. Mm. He had been severely beaten and he was badly injured. The abuse from the police was even brought up in the trial. Weber questioned the bruising and they tried to blame that the bruising all over Butch was from an altercation that he had with his dad days before the murders. Uh, okay. But here's the thing. He didn't have any bruising the day he was taken into custody. (laughs) (laughs) And those other bruises would have been yellow. Further along. Like what? Like 70 days later when he saw Geraldine, right? So don't get arrested in Suffolk County, New York. No. (laughs) I wouldn't still. (laughs) No, I I mean, I don't want to get arrested at any time, hopefully, but definitely not there. I'll be on my best behavior. Just don't get caught. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Butch claimed that during the entire interrogation, he was demanding an attorney and they refused to get him one or to listen. And at the time, Butch was unaware of this, but his grandfather already had an attorney waiting for him and that was trying to find him. And this was an attorney by the name of Richard Weasling. The Suffolk County PD gave him the runaround and the runaround and the runaround. And they even sent him to multiple locations. Whoa. Just wouldn't produce him. And he wasn't able to see him. After Butch confessed. Then all of a sudden he can come in. Where to find the gun and other items. They went back to Bobby because at first Bobby was holding out too. Right. Bobby was being held somewhere else. But he was holding out too. But then he did throw Butch under the bus. But one of the stories that Butch brings up, which honestly to me, with all the details given by those involved and those still alive after the murders, including experts and people close to them, mm-hmm. holds weight as to me the most feasible possibility outside of Butch killing all six people himself, okay. even though it never helped him get out of jail. And that is a story in which Rick Osuna said is backed by extensive research, third party accounts and documentation. And this is with the help of all of the people I've mentioned up to this point, which include doctors, neighbors. So let's take it back to when Butch showed up at the house after his mom called asking him to come help. Okay, Do we remember that story? Okay, everybody was fighting. 
He went in. He saw little John Hurt and crying. His mother was under attack. He ran up there. Big Ronnie trips and falls and he watches his mother run to his aid instead of allowing Butch to try and stop his father's madness. Right. Don at this point is just watching and laughing. Butch heads down to the basement and invites his friends over for drinking and to play pool. Bobby Kelsky and Augie de Janeiro, which yep. we talked about. Yep. At some point, Don comes downstairs to talk about what happened that night, claiming that everyone was now asleep. Okay. Don was livid. Her father had threatened the life of her boyfriend. And remember, she like truly believed her father was going to do something to them. Mm-hmm. And because she had this plan of leaving to go to Florida that was happening pretty soon with her friend. She needed her dad out of the like, way. She's like, I, yeah, exactly. She starts begging Butch to help her do something about it all. Okay. She somehow found out about the original plan that the boys were going to be killing Big Ronnie. Remember? At some point. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At the grandfather's behest. So she started pushing for them to do something about it that night. She wanted to kill her parents. Okay. Including her mother. Why her mom? Because her mom didn't stand up for her. At this point, she felt that their mother was just as bad. That she, she was the enabler. Essentially poisoned by Big Ronnie and there was just nothing to be saved there anymore. Okay. Butch was not taking her seriously at the time. It was just like, get out of here or whatever. And he actually had De Janeiro take her away and try and go like distract her with something else. His penis. <laughs> <laughs> not his penis. <laughs> He seemed like an okay dude, honestly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they start to play on the piano upstairs. Butch and Bobby hear this and they run up like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you just right. trying to like have him come down here and start and beating us all? At us? Yeah. But he realized that Augie was actually trying to help because he heard Big Ronnie and Louise arguing again and he didn't want Dawn oh, to set her off to again. hear what was going on. But because of all of that, they all kind of creepily climbed up the stairs just to get a closer listen to what was going on. Okay. And they said they overheard Big Ronnie suggesting that they need to do something about Butch and Don. Ooh. To kill Butch and have Don committed to an institution saying that they've both lost their minds. The whole time the mom is crying, but she ultimately concedes to doing something about the two of them. Uh, okay. So they're not too happy. They all end up back downstairs and Don and Butch essentially decided right then and there. Time to kill everyone. We're going to kill our parents. Oh, okay. Okay. Butch wanted to get the kids out of the house first. Now, again, this is all his account. This is Butch's account, right. Okay. So somewhere in between is the truth. Exactly. Somewhere in between. Butch said he wanted to get the kids out of the house first, but Don was convinced that if they didn't go through with it, like right now, when their parents fell asleep, that they would chicken out and they wouldn't do it. And she's like, I fucking need this done. (laughs) I need him dead. I have a life in Florida waiting for me. And they also convinced Butch's two friends to help in this whole situation. The plan was to go upstairs and kill the parents and then take the kids to the grandparents' house. Okay. They were going to blame the whole thing on the mafia. Surprise! Shocker. Uh, since Big Ronnie, he was under scrutiny for stealing money. money. Yeah. So they tied the family dog up outside. Yep. And Butch even admits, he's like, we, we fucking hated each other. And he would have 
try to do something and get in my way. Yeah. So De Janeiro was supposed to stand lookout and okay. Don, Butch and Bobby went upstairs. Okay. So they went upstairs in the doorway of the parents' bedroom mm-hmm. and Butch pointed the gun at Big Ronnie and I guess he stood there too long <laughs> Yeah. and was starting to chicken out and he said that Don grabbed the gun and she was the one that fired the first shot. Okay. That woke up their mother and then Butch took the gun and he shot her. So okay. it was like a grab reaction. Right. That also woke up the other kids, he said, which makes sense. Yeah. It's a big loud gun. Right. And there's kids and all the younger kids were on the same level as, yeah, so it was as really the loud yeah. yeah he said that don went and like closed all their doors and told them to stay in their rooms in a really harsh way like if you even fucking come out i'm gonna beat you guys yeah. or you know something like that while standing near the parents' room, the three of them kind of start to panic a little. Well, it seemed that, <laughs> at least in the recreation of what was happening, Don was like the one who was, ah, it's fine, guys. Or I don't know. It was funny. The way that they represented her was a little funny. She's not like, whatever. Yeah, whatever. So they're standing there and Big Ronnie surprised them. He's Big Ronnie dead. was out of the bed and he was kind of stumbling towards them. Okay. The first shot didn't kill him. Butch panicked and he shot his dad again. And they were sort of standing over him in this stair landing area uh-huh. in front of the master bedroom. And they heard Louise moaning and Bobby quickly took out a gun and shot the mom again. They were a different shot. gun. Yeah, a different gun. This is important here in a, in a minute. OK. At this point, Bobby fled. So he shot. <laughs> And then he, they're He's standing like, on the here. stairs. He essentially just hopped over Big Ronnie and was just like, Fuck. He's like, never mind. I don't want to do this <laughs> it's anymore. Like, I just killed somebody. <laughs> um, and it's some, remember, De Janeiro is supposed to be somewhere too. <laughs> yeah, so, he's on lookout somewhere. Yeah, but at some point during all of this, he, he, would ju- he just left. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, like fuck this shit. Go. I'm not going <laughs> to have anything to do with this. Because he did sign up to help kill the dad, but the mother was never supposed to be part of this scenario, and he was not comfortable with that. So after that, Don went upstairs, and I don't know, Butch took a couple seconds to himself or something. And when he went up to Don, Don was already packing her clothes. Okay. She's like, I'm just, I'm ready to go. <laughs> They're dead. Let's She's go. Like, I got what I needed and Hop I'm in going the to Florida. Were there Beatles back then? Hop in the bug. <laughs> it was the 70s, yeah. Yeah, okay. So he said she had music on and was dancing. <laughs> She's like, ding dong, the witch is dead But song. he's panicking and he said, I need to go find Bobby. Like, I need his help, you to know. move this 270 pound. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, I cannot move Big Ronnie by myself. <laughs> yeah. So he instructed Don, okay, now go take the kids to grandpa and grandma. Okay. Well, he went out to go look for Bobby because he couldn't be far, you know, mm-hmm. ran out of the house. So he gets in his car and is looking for Bobby. After like 20 to 30 minutes, he does see Bobby. He's just like walking on the street. <laughs> okay. And he cuts him off and <laughs> essentially convinces him to come back to the house. Like, you yeah. have to help me. You're, you're part of this fucking bullshit now. Yeah. So they get back to the house. Bobby refused to go upstairs at first. He's, I'm just staying down here. Like, I, I don't know. So... Butch is running upstairs to go find Don because the kids were supposed to be gone. And they were still there, he thought. He opened their doors and found the kiddos dead. And while taking that in, Mm. you know, obviously he was shocked and pissed and he's not understanding. Like they're supposed to be gone at grandma and grandpa's house. So while he's taking all that in, he hears loud music coming from Don's room in the third floor attic. Okay. So he runs up there out of control. And according to him, 
you know, she killed the kids while he was gone. He yeah. confronted her and she said, well, kids talk. <laughs> oh, you know? my gosh. They're all fucking witnesses. They had to go anyway. Like, we're good. We're free now, you know. Whoa. And he was infuriated. And the gun was on the floor. Okay. So he picked it up and they fought over it. Mm -hmm. And according to him, as they were trying to fight over this gun, she fell back into the bed. There's another account that in the struggle, she kind of got hit in the head with the gun. Yeah. But then he shot her. And she was the one shot in the front of the face, right? She was the one that was shot in the back of the head. Okay. So that's why like getting a little bit knocked out and then getting shot in the back of the head kind of makes a little bit more sense. The one that was shot in the front of the face was Allison and she was the younger shy one. So Dawn would have done that to her sister? Exactly. Oh. There is a lot of rumors that they didn't like each other. Oh. Dawn and her. Okay. So who knows? Sisters. To me, hers was the most brutal. I'm like, yes. you're shooting her in her Maybe she face. was sleeping on her back and that was just what she did. Who knows? Afterwards, Butch and Bobby got to work trying to clean things and get Big Ronnie back in the bed. He claimed to have also burned documentation, his father's ledgers from the dealership with all the numbers, okay. to protect his grandfather because he knew that eventually this house is being searched and I need to get rid of this mm -hmm. evidence. He said that Bobby got rid of the rifle, which he had said before. And right. Butch got rid of the other things except the small gun. The small gun was taken by Bobby because it was his 38 revolver. Okay. Remember, this is all according to Butch. Right. That Bobby shot the second shot that killed his mom, his mother. Bobby took the revolver to the home of Franklin Boyd, who worked for Mr. Briganti at the dealership and said that Boyd melted down the revolver, which is a Colt Python. Mr. Boyd actually corroborated this, that he oh. was awoken by Bobby at his front door around 4 a.m. on November 13th. And Bobby had them go down to the dealership and that he was handed a gun to melt down. Now, this guy worked for the mob, too, but I don't think he worked yeah. for the mob. You know, I think he was aware that he worked for yeah, and so mob people. And there's a difference. And he was given something to do and he did it. Right. Because and he did you don't sign, question. He did sign attesting to this. Yeah. Also, to cooperate that, the Nonowitzes were approached by detectives early on to question guns. Yeah. Because Lene was the housekeeper. Mm -hmm. So they were asking her about a second gun. She remembered moving stuff around, which sometimes included guns, but didn't know what kind of guns they were. And all of this comes from the fact that Louise had two different types of bullets in her. Okay. Which if you take Butch's statement. Sounds right. It lines up. Yeah. Right. Bobby did the second shot. Yeah. There was also a document found from the ballistic specialist at the crime scene that essentially states that the second bullet in Louise doesn't match up to the others. It was a bullet weighing 169 grains with a diameter of 0.363, and it had eight lands and eight grooves remaining. It was a fragment. And if you were to look at the rest of the other bullets taken from the crime scene, it weighs essentially the same, but this was just a fragment. Okay. So if you were to do some math, it actually puts it more along the lines to be consistent with that of a bullet for a 38 handgun. Okay. Because of the trajectory or whatever. Which is the same type of gun that Franklin Boyd claimed to have melted down for Bobby that yep. morning. However, in official documents that were released, description of that bullet, the fragment of it, was changed to be consistent with other bullets. Yeah. But they convict. were able to yeah. find the original ballistics information yeah. from the dude. At, I should have wrote him down. He was talked about a lot. I'm sorry I did not write your name <laughs> the down. The dude. You for The dude. Ever will be known as the dude. At the crime scene. <laughs> Now, remember the letter that Butch wrote his grandfather about that he wasn't the only one. Right. I remember that Sullivan, the prosecutor, 
his first stance was that it wasn't just Multiple, Butch. Yeah. Well, the detectives who arrived at the Nonowitz's house asking about a second gun was part of that unit that Sullivan put together. Okay. So Michael Brigante got one of this, though, mm. and had some contacts that they thought that one of the other accomplices that Sullivan was looking for was believed to be a female that was close to the kids. Okay. Dawn, yeah. But that's not what Brigante thought. What did he, he thought think? of Geraldine. Oh. And so he went to Geraldine and he thought the cops were going to come after her and he knew it wasn't her. Like she right. wasn't even around that and she was the kid. She had no motive at all. None. But it was at this time that Geraldine's marriage to Butch was erased and she ah, was instructed okay. to no longer go by the last name, stay away from the trial, do not testify. Because Geraldine, at this point, she was the only one with a grandchild of his. Okay. A great grandchild. Yeah. And Butch was in prison. Right. So, so he wanted to keep He them didn't safe. want her to go away to or for them to come after her. Now, Augie de Janeiro, who was so-called lookout, his name did come up multiple times as a possible person involved. And this was brought up by like neighbors, just people around Abneyville. They would be like, well, you know, that Augie. Friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, de Janeiro did end up writing in and providing a statement to Butch's lawyer that Don talked about killing her father quite often. Okay. And that even on one occasion, Don asked him for a gun with no markings. That can't be traced back to her. Right. However, after this, Augie just disappears like off the map, even like 20 years later. You can't find him. And even if you know, talk, try to talk to people that, you know, at least know who he is, they'll be like, I don't talk about Augie. I can't talk to you about him or something. So, so he, he seems well. to be very protected, probably within these the families. Family. Yeah. Other family acquaintances never questioned that Butch was capable of killing his father. Mm -hmm. Like they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> He'd fucking kill he him in an heartbeat, really. Yeah, he beat him up since he was born. But they did not see how he could be the only one to kill his mother. And they didn't see him ever hurting his siblings. Yeah. And they said, especially Allison. OK. Because he loved her and she was his favorite. So and she was the one that was, was shot killed differently. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm like. That seems more like a Dawn move. Right. And not a Butch move to have shot Allison so close in the face like that. Yeah. Even Dr. Kathleen Puckett. So I mentioned them before. So Dr. Kathleen Puckett, she's a professor of criminal psychology and she's a retired FBI agent mm -hmm. of 23 years. So she was doing it for a while. She knows what she's doing. And Dr. Eric Hickey, he's a criminal psychologist and dean of the California School of Forensic Studies. Both of them could not fall in line with a story that Butch did alone. Most familicide tragedies are usually done by the father. Mm -hmm. We've heard then, a lot of those. Who then either take themselves out. Yes. Or run away for some sort of reason to start a new life. And usually it's because of feeling like I failed and my family can't go on like this. Like right. they have to come with me or of financial issues. Like there's something always that way. So this was different. Yes. They believe that one person controlling six different people in a three story home all in different rooms is really hard to believe. And it's pretty unheard of too. Right. Now, if Don was there helping to keep the kids in their rooms and yes. whatnot, then it seems more plausible. They were all in different rooms. Yes. How does one person go around, shoot six people in their beds without all of them getting up and scrambling and hiding yeah. and screaming or whatever? And they're all laying on their stomachs. Yes. That's something that's never been understood. 
Did he go around positioning them all afterwards? Which I, I believe that that's the case because obviously there's evidence that they were moved. Someone put them in a certain position. Okay. Why like that? I don't know. They didn't want to see them. They, they didn't want to see their faces. Or they wanted to make it look like a mob hit. Is that how the mob usually That's true. I mean, maybe more execution man. style. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. What's interesting is some of the shots, like I said, do seem to have been with them laying where they were. Right. So the two boys could have been asleep. Well, no, because they would have been woken up by these shots that were happening. But then Don told them to go in their rooms and maybe she told them to go lay down. And I don't think there was enough time for them to have fallen back asleep. I don't know. Yeah. But either way, whether it was asleep or just afraid laying in their bed. Yeah. Lay on your stomach. Yes. I mean, they're children. Lay on your stomach. Lay on your stomach. Lay on your stomach. So they were found in those positions and appeared to have been shot in those positions because that's where they found the bullet holes. Yeah. And they were clutching well. their pillows. Allison had to have been moved. Yeah. She probably fought her sister off. She was, I unfortunately saw the crime scene photo and her face was literally in the pillow and her arms were like this, but all the blood is around her going down to the floor and she was shot from the front, not the back. Right. So she had to have been moved. And then we have Big Ronnie, who even the prosecution said in the trial that he got up at some point and was put back in bed. Yeah. There's another part that's been questioned for a long time, and that's the guns themselves and the noise that they made. Yeah. Made. Because everyone says that this type of gun would have been very loud. Yeah, because it was like a rifle. Yes. And all of the neighbors claim to have not heard guns. Okay. But after coming back to those same people over time and after more interviews, slowly it came out that yes, people heard the gunshots. Why didn't they say that before? Because they know that this family was involved with the mafia. Oh, I and see. And they're not going to go involving themselves in something yeah, they don't having want their to name do with on this record. Yeah. So nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. They heard the shots. And and they, they just didn't do anything about yeah. it. That's it. And then to further add weight to Don being involved, even her own boyfriend gave testimony, Billy Davidge. Okay. Or the one that she was trying so hard to get to. Right. He signed an affidavit in 1974 confirming that Don wrote the song The Night the DeFeos Died. Yes. Which essentially is a fantasy about the murder of her family. And stated that Don would have ridden with the devil to get to Florida. That Don was very, very motivated to get out of that house by any means necessary. And there are two other things that also point to Don's involvement. I'm not trying to go after Don. I don't know Don. Right. Okay. I'm not trying to blame her, but a lot of this evidence does show that she had part of this in some way or another. Again, it's your discernment here. But one of the things that they found that they weren't able to answer was there was partially burnt gunpowder on her nightgown. Okay. Based on the autopsy, Don was not shot at extremely close range. So that shouldn't have been there. Well, because if you are shot at close range, within three feet, typically there is stippling around your own. And Mm -hmm. that is when the gunpowder like embeds itself in your skin. Okay. And she didn't have that, but it was on her nightgown. This is one reason why it's questioned is she had a blanket on and she was in this bed and there wasn't any on her blanket. So if she was shot while she was in bed, there should have been been some on her blanket, but instead it was just on her nightgown in areas, which some could argue then that she was the one with the gun at times because she was the one that was in close range to that gun powder to be expelled toward her. Yeah. The other thing was, and this one's a big one. To me, this one says the most out of it all. She was not at the same rigor mortis phase as the rest of her family. Oh, okay. They're concluding that all of these murders happened within 15 minutes at three o'clock in the morning, three to four in the morning. Yes. Well, Dawn was an oddball out. Dawn was only in partial rigor mortis and the rest of her family, rigor mortis was complete. Okay. Do you know anything about rigor mortis? I know how they, yeah, 
how okay. they use it to classify. Now there's six bodies and Dawn was the last to be autopsied. That means she died even later than the rest, like even more later than they would think if she was the last one to be autopsied. Meaning she should have been more, more yeah, that's what I'm saying, than yeah. the rest, yes. Which argues that she died at a different time than the rest of her family and lines up with Butch's events of coming back I and did finding this her. and I had to come back and then we did this and then I yeah. shot her. Because it places her death essentially 45 minutes to an hour or so after the rest of her family. Yeah, while she's up in her room packing. Yeah. So to me, that's a big one. Yeah, I would agree. And the night when police arrived at the home after the murders, when both of Butch's grandparents were there, not grandparents, but grandfathers. Yeah. There was also another person there, and that was the priest, a priest of their local Catholic church. And he told Gloria Gangitano, who was the family friend, that he saw prints on the wall and that to him there was signs of struggle everywhere. Okay. Uh, which further proves the theory that Big Ronnie may have gotten out of bed after and come towards them. Right. Because I think what's missing here is they argued that Big Ronnie was put back in bed yeah. easily, but he did die in the hallway. Another odd couple of things. Remember the bloodstains in photo evidence that were brought up by Herman Race on the red carpet? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, based on the evidence, there was also bloodstains on the doorframe of the master bedroom. What is interesting about this piece is later on, once others could get their hand on documentation, the part describing the blood on the doorframe is bracketed in pen and above it, the word omit. <laughs> they just decided, oh, let's, leave. Just, let's act just, like just leave this out that of That didn't this. really happen. We're and good. in another document listing out all of the items removed from the DeFeo home as evidence included a piece of carpet, which happened to have been in front of the master bedroom oh. and to the side of that piece of evidence was destroy. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, y'all need to make it a little less obvious. On top of it, his dad was a big guy. And I've seen the pictures, him falling out of the bedroom into this little landing area. There wouldn't have been room, a whole lot of room to do much of anything. Yeah. Especially if you're some tall, skinny little weirdo trying to pull your, like, your, just, yeah. just, your dad weighs twice do? as much as you. No way. And no way. and when a body's dead, I think it's even heavier or something like that, right? When Yeah. yeah. To somewhat corroborate this was confirmed by Dr. Howard Edelman. He was the chief medical examiner who did the autopsies. Okay. He said he used to take his own camera and film to crime scenes and he would take a bunch of photos, but he, you know, would then hand them over to the police. And it wasn't until much later when he retired and was teaching that he requested to have the photos back from what he took at the DeFeo house because he was doing a lecture. Okay. And he wanted to have, you know, his own evidence photos to help him talk in this lecture. But when he got the photos back, it included photos that he did not take 20 of them okay. and those photos included blood splatter photos in other areas mm. the wall other door frames and trim on the grandfather's painting there were blood splatters okay and there was blood on dresser drawers in the master bedroom okay so i don't even know how to really like quite sum it up yeah but despite all of this all that has come out to corroborate his story over the years or at least part of it and that he wasn't the only murderer it didn't help him over his time in prison, he made several appeals and requests for parole. Every single one was denied. He died on March 12th, 2021. And oh, the official wow. cause of death has not been released. But it is reported that Michael Bergante supported his grandson up until his death in 1985, which is a big one, I think, yeah. because he was essentially obsessed with taking care of his own daughter and right. His entire family was murdered and he supported Butch still. Butch. Yeah. Very I heavily. Do you think that says something? I do. 
I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> What's your thoughts here? I mean, from everything that you presented, and I haven't heard all the other theories and, you know, what other people might think happened, I believe it sounds pretty on track that Don was probably involved like I feel like I'm sure Butch left some things out like maybe he knew his sister killed the kids and he wanted to say there's a lot that I I can't even include in talking yeah he did say at one point I don't want anybody else to get in trouble for killing the family right okay so one of them is that the mother had something to do with part of it. Oh. That the mother had killed somebody, whether it was the kids or Ronnie or something. One of them, yeah. And so the original thought was Butch did this to protect her memory okay. from the grandfather. So he just took it all. And they were coming after him anyway. Like they were, he was going to go to jail, jail anyway. Yeah. And so part of him was why, why drag value any, yeah. everybody else in the process? Yeah. There's no reason to drag other people's names into the mud with his. But, you know, over time he's like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. Why am I going to take the fall for absolutely all of this? So yeah. he tried. And, and, and in some cases he was a dick. He was an asshole. Right. He was selfish and he wanted his way. But in other times, we're like, well, he was a good guy. I don't know. Yeah, Nothing wrong with him. That, that's was how just, most people are. You're always going to be either the dick or the... There's always gray the area. nice person. Yes. And you know what? This family was really, really fucked up. All it of was. them were not going I mean, to they leave. They were. Yeah. They were all going to have trauma and need lots of therapy the longer they lived. Like everyone mm-hmm. here was a victim of Big Ronnie, really, who started yes. it all. And so. in most stories, he's not mentioned as this. In most stories, it's Butch. Was evil. It was evil. And he's just a really fucked up person. And he did all this and he killed them all. And I just don't think that that's the whole story. But so many people have run with that for so many years. So I just wanted to present a different side. The other side. (laughs) So I want to take a major turn now. Okay. I don't want to put a whole episode to this. So we're going to now talk about when the DeFeo murders transitioned And it became the Amityville Horror House. Okay. Okay. So while the trial was going on, remember, the house was going through probate. Right. And it was up for sale. Being that it was the site of the worst mass murder in Amityville history, it was going for a discount. Yeah. About a year after the murders, 112 Ocean Avenue was listed for $80,000. And it ended up selling to George and Kathleen Lutz in December of 1975. When George and Kathy, she went by Kathy, first went to the home, Kathy immediately fell in love with it. They figured the home at the time should have been going for more like $130,000, $150,000. So they were shocked by the price, but it was almost 4,000 square feet with a finished basement. It was three main floors, garage, pool, on the canal, boat dock. I mean, I've shown you my lake house painting. (laughs) That's my dream. Like I would scoop it up too. Right. For half price. Yeah. So George and Kathy were recently married. She had three children from a previous marriage. Daniel, who was nine. Christopher, who was seven. Missy, who was five. And a family dog who was a black lab named Harry. 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 Harry Potter. Prior to moving in, they had the High Hope sign taken down and they also had all of the statues removed. Okay. I would have. Yeah, I don't think I would have kept those. (laughs) They claimed to immediately have had the home cleansed by a priest. Okay. They were students of transcendental meditation and Kathy. You just made up a word. (laughs) Kathy claimed to have visions before moving in. 
They only lived there for 28 days. So they claim that they did not know this house was the site of a mass murder. They just claim to have had visions and feelings. Is this before they had to disclose when so, selling a house that murder happened? They do know that someone died there because it has to be released. Right. Regardless, right? But the main story about the Lutzes is that they were going to move in anyway. And yes, they know what happened here, but it's good. Like we're They're new, cleansing the house. We're new it's to good. the area. You know, this is our dream home. Here we go. We're going to get into some of the other quote unquote debunking things here in a minute. Okay. I'm going to tell you essentially just the story as we know it, I guess. Okay. So they only lived there for 28 days. They left very suddenly in the middle of the night without any of their belongings. They claimed that the house was filled with demonic forces, but their story had such an impact that Amityville today is known for their story and not the DeFeo tragedy. Yep. Which I proved by not knowing any fucking thing about the DeFeos. I don't know anything about the DeFeos until now. Although... I think as more time goes on, more understanding and coming to know the true horror of what happened, I do feel like that's just very slowly changing. More people are going to know about the Tefeos. If the home was haunted during the Lutz's time there, I believe it was isolated to them. Okay. Big quote on if (laughs) or big air (laughs) tags on if. Yeah, I don't know. Still, it's a story worth telling. Hoax or not. The residents of Amityville, however would prefer it never existed. They want all the people to leave. It's, you know, a tragedy happened. And a lot of the families that are still there knew the DeFeos. And they've never been able to move on from that because of this paranormal, supernatural, like, claims from the house. They're like, we just had a nice town. Like, leave us the fuck alone. So they don't want me to go there this summer is what you're telling me. Maybe I shouldn't go. Okay, if Kendra goes and drives by the house... Don't get mad at her. Okay, <laughs> everybody else is going to do it. Maybe they block off the street. Now, if maybe it's like a private street you need a gate to get through. You never know. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> I guess you'll find out. <laughs> that would make more sense than changing the address number. Right. Just put a security guide out there. So before I get into everything else, I'm just going to like kind of read off some of the hauntings Ooh. that were present in the Amityville horror. Yep. The book and all that. Of course, there was mention of smelling really strange odors. There were cold spots in certain areas of the house that only George would feel. Okay. George complained of never being able to get warm. So he's constantly starting fires and Mm -hmm. he was just constantly stirring a fire. Doors would slam in the middle of the night. Missy, who's the youngest little girl, she had an imaginary friend named Jody. I don't know why Jody to me just sounds like a good name. I don't want a Jody being a bad thing. Yeah, there was no Jody in the DeFeo family, so wasn't their ghost. No, but Jody was said to sometimes appear to Missy as a pig. Okay, or a little boy. Okay, files, files, the X files, <laughs> flies <laughs> appeared in the windowsills on the second floor bedroom that they used as a sewing room, and it said like hundreds. Like just Mm -hmm. like all like in the corner of like a window corner cell. And that's where the two DeFeo boys died. So that's what room that is. And this is also where there was a priest who visited and claimed that he was yelled at to get out. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. I'm kind of listing off everything is in an assumption that you've seen the movie because my interest is more in whether this is a real haunting it's not a real haunting. Yeah. Just because we're coming off of the DeFeos. Right. It's really not, I think, the place to all of a sudden be like, ooh, spooky, spooky. By the way. By the way, spooky, spooky. 
So I should have really done this as a separate episode, but I do want to talk about it somewhat because it's what everyone knows it for. Yes, exactly. No one would know the DeFeos, sadly, in a lot of cases without this. So other occurrences were objects moving around. Obviously, that's typical. And they claimed that they would throw something out one day and then it would show back up in their house, like, you know, on a table or something like that. And then they claimed that they had green ooze that leaked through the walls. Not sad. And the keyhole of the playroom door. Okay. They also discovered a secret room, Mm. which they called the Red Room. It was a small room that wasn't listed in the house plans. It was four by five and it was hiding behind a shelf in the basement and it was painted red. Okay. And they claimed that the family dog refused to go near it, Mm -hmm. which just added to its ominous existence and like well do you lock him in shit i was like dogs don't want to go in little areas that they don't know (laughs) usually i know i was like "Mm." i did find out that he kept the dog outside and i'm already like i don't trust people you know what animals outside you know what that room was what it was where big ronnie kept his embezzled funds (laughs) that's probably pretty true (laughs) and maybe some guns and who knows what else but that would be my guess it's red and it's very tiny and i'm like you like sex dungeon people yeah they could have been in the bdsm yeah exactly that's just where he kept all his shit um it could have been a gun place too that's what i'm saying it could have had drugs in it it could have had cash Yeah. yeah who knows But they argued that this little small room would sometimes smell like an open sewer pipe. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I'm like, okay. Okay, Well, that could just be an old house. I think that they're just trying to add more. Because ghosts and demons emit smells sometimes. okay. Okay. At one point, it's argued that Danny, his fingers were flattened smashed ouchie when the window shut suddenly and quickly on his finger so you haven't seen the movie and that happens mm-hmm. she's like you know they were rushing to get dressed and rushed to get him to the hospital by the time that they were about to head out the door his fingers were back to normal that's weird i'm i'm confused there's so much back and forth that happens here back in the day others said he claimed that he did rush danny to the hospital but when he was questioned Okay, which hospital? He's oh, like, I oh, forgot. no, no, no. It was just the doctor's office. And then when he was questioned which doctor, he just like stopped answering questions about He's like, this. like, I got to go now. So in some accounts, I hear the testimony that he said, well, when we, we were about to leave and all of a sudden they were just back to normal. And then mm. in other accounts, he claims that he rushed him to the hospital. Yeah, that seems Maybe, bogus. And to me, it's the one where they were back to normal seems more paranormal than rushing a kid to a hospital because a sash of a window falls down on his fingers. Right. Which can happen. In any house. Seriously. Any old house, It's especially. literally just some, a balance breaking right. inside the window sash. So I think that it maybe it just changed over time to be more paranormal-like. Yes. At one point, George said that an unseen force was holding him to the bed. Mm. And while this was happening, he was forced to hear the children's bed slamming up and down on the floor. Okay. Meaning he like couldn't get to them. He couldn't help them. Everybody right. was being affected. Haunted. Haunted. At one point, Kathy, at least visually, turned into an old woman, they oh, said. Okay. She just was one second beautiful blonde chica. And then she looked in the mirror and she was an old hag. Okay. And George said this too. That happens to me in the morning. <laughs> I mean, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how we change from day to day? Like, I mean, I went to bed looking I'm okay. Like, oh, honey, you look so pretty without makeup and your skin's glowing. And you just, and then other days, I'm like, it's sometimes <laughs> the literal next day. And I'm like, what the fuck? It's after what too much is wine. That? <laughs> your skin's dry and 
you look like shit. You're a little <laughs> bit more plump in the cheeks. And I'm like, I don't like her, old <laughs> hag. <laughs> Darn it. Anyway, it's just bad lighting is she, what I'm saying. She, she went back to normal, though. Another time she levitated off their bed, George saw this. And it's also been said that the kids have also levitated off their beds as well. Okay. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Deep meditation. <laughs> And then there's the demonic pig incident. If you know yeah, anything. Yeah, everyone knows that. Okay. Yeah. So George and Daniel claimed that they witnessed a demonic pig with green or red, it's different in occasions, yeah. glowing eyes outside the bedroom window. So there's that. One of the biggest things and what kind of was part of George's descent into madness or whatever was every morning he would wake at 3.15 a.m. Yep. Which is the same time that they assume like or around the same time that the DeFeo family members were murdered. Um, He would get up and wander the house, check on the kids, check on all the doors, and then would often notice that the side door of the boat dock building was open. He became very obsessed with the boat dock door. Okay. Um, And he would go to close it. He said it's because the boat was very important to him okay, and that it was an investment and he needed to make sure that nothing happened to it. He just needed to make sure Maybe that the store was closed. had OCD. No, oh, yeah. Pretty bad. <laughs> and it <laughs> woke bad. him up every morning. And at this point, he's not showering. He's not shaving. He's pretty stinky. He's constantly lighting fires in the house. He's not eating. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention that he was outside at one point down by the boat dock door. That's kind of fun to say. <laughs> boat dock door. <laughs> boat dock door. Um, and he was looking up at the house and he saw an adult sized person standing in Missy's room. Okay. It wasn't Kathy. He just went up to go check and nobody was there. So they left the home. Okay. You guys have all been scared by a movie. I don't think I needed to go into that part too much. Right. If you want to go watch the be movie, be scared, go watch the movies. <laughs> That's how I'm trying to get through this one. Yep. So after fleeing the home, George and Kathy decided to have a paranormal investigation done of the house. Over 21 people were in the home of the night that this was done, and it was done on March 6, 1976. Okay. So this is about three months okay. after. Some experienced things during this time and others did not. So I'm going to kind of just list off those that I found that were there. Um, Ed and Lorraine Warren, the paranormal investigative team, research associates of Ed and Lorraine. There was a film crew, photographers, psychics who included Dr. Carl Osis and Dr. Tinos, who were from the New York Psychical Research Institute. I found that they were two people who both claimed several years later to have not been there. Oh, okay. <laughs> but they're on video um, <laughs> and pictures. And they're like, that's we not there. me. It I wasn't just me. wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> um, there is Jerry Salvin, who was from Duke University, and he was a psychical research investigator. There were investigative reporters, including Laura Didio. So Ed and Lorraine Warren are well known. Yes. If you haven't heard of their names, you've heard of their stuff. Absolutely. Their investigation spawned several popular and successful horror movies. Yes. Annabelle. The Conjuring. The Conjuring movies. And Amityville Horror. Yes. I'm sure along this journey, we may end up covering all of them pretty extensively. I'd like to come back to Amityville at some point. I feel like I'm just going to give the high level a highlight level of information here. 
Um, together, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952 and performed paranormal investigations for more than 50 years all over the globe. And over those 50 years, they claimed to have solved over 10,000 cases. They were busy. <laughs> yes. And she was asked a couple of years before she passed what the scariest place she's ever been to or investigated was. And she said Amityville. Hmm. They felt like something followed them that night. Okay. And even on their drive home that it tried to drive them off the road. Okay. So during the investigation of the Amityville home, a lot happened. They had a seance. Mm-hmm. Ed was physically pushed around. Lorraine felt an overwhelming presence of a demonic entity or entities in the home. Big Ronnie. Yeah. Could have been. <laughs> and had a vision of the dead DeFeo family members' bodies on the ground, even though that's not where they yeah, were. Yeah, they weren't. She was quoted saying about the home that it was as close to hell as I ever want to get. Jean- okay. So Gene Campbell, who was working with Ed and Lorraine, he was the photographer for them. He set up an automatic camera with infrared. Mm -hmm. And this is a very famous photo and probably the only thing that people can be like, yeah, it's kind of haunted, is there is a boy peeking out behind the railing of the family home stairs. Yeah. And it's in a doorway and he has glowing white eyes. And they believe that it's John. The youngest to fail. Yeah, I could see that. But the Lutzes, upon seeing that photo, are like, yeah, that's Jody. <laughs> Poor little kid. And that's probably something you did all the time, peeking out from that room behind yeah. the stairs to see who was fighting or see oh, what's going you're on. Right. And so, if you can come downstairs or go hide. Yeah. yeah. Poor John. So I did want to, want to, want to, want to, want to. <laughs> we all like blur some of our words together. Yes. I want to. I want to. W-A-N-N-E. You want to. Um, I did want to bring up Laura Didio's account because she was the investigative reporter and just give her opinion of the night. Okay. And her opinion of the Lutzes. Okay. So she recalled following Lorraine around the house. This was during an initial visit. It was two weeks before the so-called seance Mm -hmm. or how Laura puts it, the so-called psychic slumber party. Okay. I want to have one. That sounds fun. (laughs) Lorraine did not know which rooms belonged to who when she first went there. Okay. And at Ronnie DeFeo's room, Butch, she said, I can't go into this room. There's just... Too much evil and too much oppression here. Oh. Well, if you're beat constantly, you're going to yeah, sit in a lot of fucking bad evil energy. thoughts. Okay, I don't, that doesn't mean anything yet. On the second stair landing, where Ronnie said his father was shot a second time coming out of his room toward them, Lorraine stopped and had an immediate headache at that spot. Now, this is according to Laura. Okay. Non-psychic right, she's reporter lady. Unbiased. <laughs> During the actual investigation, those two weeks later... With that many people in the house, she said it took on sort of this like party atmosphere. Mm. I'd get pretty down too. (laughs) (laughs) But she expected to see things levitating or like other paranormal or supernatural occurrences happening and no, just all this stuff. And she's like, I I didn't, you know, they were just hanging out and having some. She said that (laughs) there were a couple of weird things that happened. She had a cameraman that came with her. Yeah. And he was assigned to it very last minute and he didn't know anything about the house. He wasn't from the area and he was going up the stairs and he turned to her with this really confusing look and said, there's a room on the second floor. It's a second bedroom, the second door on the right. 
the one wall is filled with mirrors. How do I know that? Like, he's like asking her, like, why am I seeing this whole fucking house already? And like, I've never been here before. Okay. This is not a time when there's any photos yeah, of there's this no internet, house out there. Right. It's not even in papers. Yeah. It took a long time for crime scene photos to be released and all okay. of that. Years, years upon years. I think at like Rick Osuna back in the day, like he was one of the only people researching, investigating that actually had access to the photos for a long time. Okay. Um, But what he was describing and what he was saying he was seeing was the room of George and Kathy where they slept. Okay. Where Big Ronnie and Louise DeFeo were murdered. Mm. That same cameraman while heading further up the stairs just like stopped in the middle of the stairs and toppled over and started to lose color. Oh. They ran up to him, brought him downstairs and attended to him. And he said that he was having heart palpitations and that he just felt a huge heaviness walking further up the stairs. And he claims to have never felt that way before. Okay. So I think other than that, there's not really a whole lot that went into that night. Okay. So it didn't seem yeah. so. I mean, there were other psychics that are there and they're like, I, I feel, feel something yes. like I'm feeling this or there wasn't anything from the people who were there to witness it to be like, I didn't see anything. Nah. Yeah. One other reporter was like, I felt coldness behind my ear, but I've never like I tried to. He's like, that's what that feels like. Well, yeah. but he's like, I've never been able to attribute it to anything other than there was just some kind of breeze about, in the house. As I say, there's a draft. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there wasn't much that came out of that. But what perpetuated the horror of the house was the Warrens and their continued yeah. testimony that this house was very, biggest, very fucking yeah. haunted and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So I'm going to get into a little bit of what I feel like helps us believe that the Lutz's story is true versus what doesn't. So once upon a time, like a year later, I think the Lutzes did take a lie detector test. Okay. And they passed. Okay. But what we know of that yeah. is that really it doesn't show much, but what they could show is they were so into their lies. Right. If they, they believe, believe it. it. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. Um, Laura Didio did interview the Lutzes in 1976. Even though George admitted that some of the details were embellished, she believed the two were genuinely terrified. Okay. She said, quote, now, if they were acting, they would have been right up there with Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep. They were giving Academy Award winning performances. Or maybe they had really vivid dreams. The whole point sometimes with a lot of this is it may still be what someone else is experiencing. Yeah. It doesn't matter if we believe it or not. Right. Another point of validity for me, if you believe Ed and Lorraine Warren and their ability in investigating the paranormal over their decades of involvement in cases, they believed that it took 28 days to fully experience a haunted location and crack the case, so to speak. Have you heard this? Yes. There's a whole series on Netflix about it. They never had a chance to prove this before they passed away, but here are their thoughts on it. I actually did not see anyone connect these two things with the 28 days. That I've read anyway. So they came to believe over their years and years of investigation that to fully uncover the secrets of a haunted location, it required being there for 28 days at minimum. Uh It would require limited outside communication and a focus to resolve whatever case they were there for as much as they could. Solving the case meant helping the spirits to move on, exercising demons, etc. So kind of like when we were in Suicide Forest. 
Typically, investigations are done in a matter of hours or days, though. Right. You come to check something out. Extended stays can sometimes be dangerous and, well, piss off whatever malevolent entities that are there if that is what they're dealing with in a particular location. It requires staying for a long period of time in which the veil between the living and the dead would thin and the two would essentially become one in the final days, allowing the investigators more insight and ability to understand what happened or get to the bottom of the reasons for the hauntings of the particular location. They felt if they could prove this, that it would revolutionize how paranormal investigations are conducted. Okay. The theory was tested recently in a Netflix documentary. I did watch all of this. Yeah. Prior to all of this, just Mm because it's one of those things like, ooh, yay, paranormal. Right. Thanks, Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) It was a documentary by the son-in-law of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Okay. Tony Spira, along with another investigator, Aaron Saggers. In this documentary, which Three different teams are blindfolded and taken to different haunted locations, so they are not aware of where they are going until they are there. This was to stop the teams from having any preconceived notions or a chance to research the location prior to going, as it was their job to learn of the location and its history and help solve the case. Okay. You did say you watched this one, right? Yes. One of them was there. Can you guess where? One of them was here. Yeah. Lumber Baron. Yeah. Lumber Baron. I I learned that when I went there for tea and talked to the innkeeper. That's how I knew about it. So two girls were murdered there. We still don't know who, but maybe these people helped solve the case. Right. So anyway, each of them stayed at those locations without outside communication or being able to leave at any point for the full 28 days with the goal to prove Ed and Lorraine's theory. Ultimately, at the end of the series, it would appear that they did do just that, but it would require many more investigations like this to solidify their theory. Okay. Now, what I found interesting is the connection between their theory and the number of days that the Lutzes were in that house. Yeah, they were there 28 days. 28 days. So if you're going to stick to Ed and Lorraine's theory, Mm -hmm. did they know about Ed and Lorraine's theory of 28 days prior? Yeah, right. I hate. It is weird that it's exactly. conniving, money-hungry people that fuck up all of our fantasies. Right. (laughs) You know? Anyway, if you're going to argue that their theory is one thing and they did not know about this 28 days prior, then this kind of proves their whole the veil was so thin and it got to such a chaotic, crazy point that the Lutzes had to flee in the middle of the night without anything. Right. It's... Yeah, that makes me suspicious that they had to have known about the 28 day to make it look more valid. They stayed there 28 days. And it's just the more I know about some of the stuff that's come through about the things that argue that the Lutzes made up a lot of this, that I hate to say it, but I start to question the Warrens right part in this. And I don't want to say that, but and all of these people have made lots of money. Mm-hmm. Yes, off they've of made this. a lot of money. But, you know, a huge argument of that is that they didn't know if they would what would happen there. So one thing that actually does still help with the validity of the hauntings in the house is the children. Because remember, there's children involved here. So Daniel Lutz, he's in his 40s now. He claims the house was haunted and that he's been running away from the home his entire life. Okay. He still has nightmares. He lives a quiet life now in Queens, New York, and he's a stonemason. He didn't want to be found. Mm. Uh, One of his friends actually outed him. Daniel Lutz also does remember the pig 
situation. Okay. He says that it was very real to him, these mm. pig encounters. And, you know, he was 38 at the time when he said this. So it was like 2013. However, I did find in other places that some of these children, because remember, these were not George's children. They were Kathy's they were children. Yeah. Um, that they had to keep up a facade in order to be included in the money oh, later on okay. that was coming with it. So that's another argument. Who knows? Well, once you have committed to a story like that, you kind of have to stick with it. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe he was fucking scared of shit. As a child, I was scared of everything. Yeah. And especially if your parents I are telling you these stories. And you have parents acting like children. <laughs> yeah. Who are trying to convince you of these scarier things that are happening. Right. Well, that's, that's just fucked up parents. Exactly. And they could have told him that they see like a pig man or whatever or a pig with eyes. And yeah, then they can he be goes influenced. To and then he goes to sleep and has I, a dream I about it. I guarantee you that if I went to my daughter at night and I'm like, do you see that demon pig right there? And she'd be like, where? Where? And she wouldn't be able to sleep in her room. Exactly. At all. So she would it just suggest like, Now to them. she would just start to see it in her eyes. And it's yeah. children are very influenced. Yeah. yeah. I would argue, ultimately, if the haunting was real, then it was George that was haunted. Haunted. Kathy, too. <laughs> I mean, they just, the argument is that George was very involved in studying the occult. Remember, they're both into meditation so he could have and stuff like yeah. that. And people can invoke demons and other things to come into their space and wreak havoc. And maybe he was just in that space, too. Yeah. So let's debunk. <laughs> That's fun. I'm not usually one that's like, let's jump to debunk. Let's debunk. <laughs> I want to have the scary ghost stories. I right. want to hear these genuine experiences. And that doesn't mean that they didn't have them. Yes. But there's just a lot out there that to makes me you think, no. says, sorry, no, that didn't happen. But it doesn't matter. Ghost stories are fun regardless. So don't take everything I'm saying here and go, well, she doesn't believe in ghosts. Or, believe me. I believe. But I don't believe the Lutzes. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fine. So outside of the Lutzes, no one living there has ever claimed to experience any paranormal before or after whatsoever. Okay. That's so suspect. Yeah. It's just a home. Something very, very tragic did happen there, but it's just a home. So if there is haunting, it's not the house. Okay. It's spirits. For some reason, if it's true, it's spirits somehow connected to the Lutzes in some way. Right. But it's not of the home. At the time that they purchased the house, the couple was actually financially in a hole. Oh, okay. Now it comes out. And tied up in other legal issues. It was thought they concocted this story for a financial gain or as a way to get out of the mortgage of the home. They actually never even made a payment on the mortgage. Not once. <laughs> uh, they were there for such a short amount of time. About nine months after leaving, they returned the home to the bank which is okay. the same essentially as like foreclosing. foreclosing. And it continues to be this story that's told time and time again, has been a profitable story since 1976. But there is no way truly to know that this would have become such a huge hit. Exactly. Yeah. Make tons of money in this way. 
Now, I do believe that there was a book deal and they thought that they would make money that way, but not enough to buy an entire fucking home. Right. And go into debt for an entire home. Yeah, you'd have to really, Unless they felt that there was a true way to make this something that was so worthwhile that there was some sort of a confirmation from people in media or you know Hollywood or something that something was going to come of something like this like something was planned ahead of time right prior to having the large group attend that did for the paranormal investigation George called Stephen and Roxanne Kaplan who were paranormal researchers at the time they were part of the only parapsychology group in Long Island okay the investigation was in the planning stage they were going to have photographers and even a professional mu- musician, not a musician, even a professional magician there to ensure that there was like nothing that was rigged. Okay. And, but over time, Stephen started to question George. Mm. So Stephen Kaplan started to ask him like very specific questions to see if let's was coming up with some of the things that he was saying and found out that he did study the occult. Okay. And George even offered up that, yeah, and there's demons here. And Kaplan's like, Uh, how do you know that you have demons? Because it's a very specific thing. How do you know that you have demons? Right. And George even mentioned the demons by their names. Oh, because he read them in the occult book. Yeah. And to Kaplan, normal people wanting an investigation don't usually know what's going on in their house. Correct. They just want help. And George was just too... He knew too much. He knew too much. He was well-versed. story and all kinds of things. George also mentioned conversing with a Ray Buckland who had previously owned a witchcraft museum in Long Island. Okay. So that gave Stephen the idea that George has probably been planning something like this for quite a while. He's just waiting for the right opportunity. Yes. And now I mentioned this a little bit before, but I don't want to believe this, but Lorraine and Ed having some financial gain in this to have lied to help about Amityville. Oh. So it said that they had their own book in the works at the time. Oh, okay. And it's one of their most famous books, which was the demonologists. Yeah. And that if they could confirm Amityville's horror, horror, haunting, whatever, hauntings, they their own book will be published. Yeah, and then regardless. they make money too. Yeah. Yes. And this was their first book. So oh, they yeah. were known, but it was their first book. Okay, that could be some validity. Prior to the sale of the home, there's also evidence that the Lutzes were very aware of the home. Oh, okay. There is evidence that they actually purchased some of the furniture from the DeFeos in probate in August of 1975. Okay. So this is, what is that, five months before they moved in. So they knew the history of the house. And they knew the history of the house and they made sure, let's grab onto some of that furniture. So we can And or that's yeah. how they came to it and they just needed some furniture. <laughs> yeah, that's And it. they're like, oh, it's nice. House. Oh, and it's going to go for really cheap. Yeah. But he did deny this in the beginning. George, yeah, of course he would. Because they said that they hadn't seen the house for the first time until November Mm. of 1975. But even other people will argue, oh, no, 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 no. You've known of that house your whole life. Now, remember, these people are from the area. Yeah, so they know. Yes. Now, here I'm going to talk about one that's pretty controversial. And a lot of people just fucking make fun of this person. And I'm not going to lie. When I first read his account and everything that he was saying, because it's just a money hungry person. Everybody's fucking money hungry. If you're yeah. going to argue the Lutzes might be too, then you can't be mad at Weber. But I'm going to mention his version of the story. 
Okay. And before I even started researching, I'm like, dude, Weber, get a life. Like that's (laughs) that's (laughs) how I felt. But now I'm like, well, you know, yeah, he was a money hungry dude. But I think the Lutzes may have just been even more hungry or just they didn't have heart. Yeah. Like they didn't care who they fucked over. That's how it kind of felt. Yeah, they just wanted money. And it felt that Weber kind of had a little bit more heart and it was just a really whatever situation. So based on his accounts, the Lutzes reached out to him prior to buying the home. He said that they were involved in transcendental meditation and they brought this up to him and that they felt the energy of the house. So they first did approach him in that woo-woo way. Right. (laughs) So now I'm deciding that woo is good. Woo-woo, it's too much woo. Yeah, woo-woo is like crazy. (laughs) Yep. Yep, yep. Right. Because I just fucked us over there. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, transcendental meditation? Like, why are you doing that? Okay, so with transcendental meditation, you open yourself up to higher levels of consciousness. So maybe the thought there in bringing that up is that it makes their veil thinner between the spiritual world. The spiritual world. And so they could feel the energy of the house or the spirits and blah, blah, blah. So if that's true, because remember, George claims that Kathy was just like, overjoyed with the house when she first saw it and she just yeah "Ah." but now she's telling Weber like it's dark something happened there you Mm -hmm. know I'm like you're excited to move in you know like so that doesn't really fit so the idea was that they're the ones that gave Weber the idea that Butch could have heard voices Uh, okay and could have felt energy that caused him to do this So he decided to test that theory. And so it was their involvement in the beginning that caused Weber to then use the insanity plea. Butch, say you've been hearing voices, say that there's something helped to do it. So that's not only when Weber switched to the insane defense, but that's also when he started thinking about a book that could be. Okay, everybody's getting a book. (laughs) Everybody gets a book. And the Lutzes were willing to buy the home to, quote, test it out. Right. It was stated by Butch and Weber that a deal was brokered that the Lutzes would buy the house and exploit Butch. Just what he did. Mm -hmm. There was a contract drafted up that made it so that all of them got money in some way or another, including Butch. So that's why he ended up going along with (laughs) With the the infinity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definity with the insanity defense. There is even question as to how Lutzes could have even purchased the house, even though the house was a deal. The Lutzes did not have money for a down payment. Oh, okay. So where'd it come from? Mm. Randomly closing on the home because it took a lot longer than other people. They just randomly showed up with $20,000 in an envelope for a down payment one day. (laughs) Sounds like mob shit or I don't know, whoever is involved. Even the Brigantes were approached for stories by Weber. Okay. To add to the validity of Butch's insanity and other things. And they're Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. They started to feel that Weber was only acting in his own self-interest and wanted Butch to find a different attorney for the appeals. But at this point, it's been sentenced. It's done. And Butch was a part of the money deal. He was expecting that at some point. Money doesn't help you much in jail. But it still helps him to provide for her. And and money were for other reasons. Butch also claims that he knew the Lutzes prior to the murders. That they were Long Island residents and Butch used to do drugs with them. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, you know, he's like, this is all a hoax from the beginning, but we, you know, we try to all make it work. I don't know. Like, can you trust Butch in that one? I don't know. I don't know. 
So ultimately, William Weber came out claiming that the Lutzes and the house was a hoax. Because at some point, they walked away from Weber. Mm -hmm. There was a money situation going on, and he wasn't the one to write the book anymore. Yeah. Somehow, the Lutzes got in cahoots with an author named Jay Anson. And even Anson was like, I wasn't the one who approached them or vice versa. It was the whole publishing. Jay Anson was just taking these liberties to tell this story, claiming it was a true story. But he claims that everything that the Lutzes said was something that they concocted Weber and them okay. concocted one night after many bottles of wine. <laughs> he said that the pig was not a pig. Mm. What they were actually talking about was a cat. There was a cat in the neighborhood who would always jump up on one windowsill and stare in and sometimes... And their eyes glow Their at eyes night. glow. Yeah. And this was even a cat that was around when the DeFeos were okay. around. And some people were like, yeah, that pig, yeah, that's this cat. And that it, makes was, it started with a W, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And they turned it into a pig. So he's going through all the things of this didn't actually happen. This is how we came up with it. Like super, what's the word? Expanded right. an idea of it. And so everybody got mad at him, though, and was like, you just want the money. And that's not actually it. Like, you're just yeah. this money person. Go away. Because <laughs> it became this big thing. Yeah. So Jay Anson released a book in 1977 called The Amityville Horror Right. And it was based on the Lutz's quote unquote account. You you guys can't ever see when I do air quotes, but I do them a lot to, yeah. to Kendra and I need to stop doing that because you don't know what, what I'm saying, what is, saying is real, real or, not. or not. But it became a best-selling book. And two years later, the first Amityville horror movie was released in theaters in 1979, which we talked about. Yep. That's the one I've seen. Yep. At some point, Rick Osuna and George Lutz got involved with each other. Okay. They lived within 10 minutes of each other and Rick was going to write a book as well. So he was, I know, but he wasn't involved in that way. He's trying to do actual research and write this book. This was before Rick had met Geraldine. Okay. And Rick had put together a website based on the hauntings. And that's actually why Geraldine reached out to him. She's like, dude, stop pushing lies. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, you need to stop that. Do you want the real truth or not the yeah. truth? And at first she did call him to essentially cuss him out and be like, fucking stop knock it saying off. This. Yeah. And then Rick was like, well, I do want to know the real, the real Sorry. truth. Yeah. You know, the real truth. So I don't know. There's no a lot knows. of questions yeah. around the DeFeos. I could have covered the Amityville much longer, but do we need to? It feels like a stain on top of the family. Yeah. And so I will give it some of my time. But at the same time, the real story is the DeFeos. The story is the DeFeos. Yeah. Not the Lutzes. And the Lutzes were there for less than a month and they weren't harmed. No. They were scared. That's what happened. They got scared and they told everybody about it. If it's true. Right. So stop taking away from the actual people who were harmed there. Their lives there. Amityville was a great movie. Yes. I'm all about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, every time I think about these debunkers and and such, uh, sometimes I've heard other podcasts say, you know what, at the end of the day, it was a good story and it made a great movie. So that person maybe should have gotten money for their creativity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's one thing to continuously spread a lie that hurts other people. So that's where the Lutz is, is if it's not true, it's, yeah, it's fucked a line. up. If they decided to put this together before they even moved in, they're literally using the DeFeo's death yeah, and as a money scheme that's, while the son is in prison right now trying to 
fight for his chance to get out. It was just weird. And if they did that, they should be haunted. Everywhere they, they should go. be haunted. <laughs> and but another sad part about that though is the children of the Lutzes were involved in all right. of this. Like, but people will do too. fucked up things for money. That's true. We know that. Ugh. So after everything, the Lutzes ended up moving to California. Their furnishings were auctioned off the following year, even though there wasn't much. <laughs> Family friends retrieved a couple of important items for them. They ended up having two children together after all of this, Noel okay. and Gabrielle, in addition to the three other children. They're busy. But they divorced in 1980. Okay. So that wasn't that much long after. No. She's like, you're she crazy. Pops out two kids and then they're divorced. She's like, so you know what? Keep making point. money off the Amityville, though, and send me those checks. Overall, as of 2014, I'm not even up to date yet. Amityville Horror and all its offshoots banked over $400 million. Oh, fuck. So they did good. Amityville became known for its house of horrors. The murder shook the town. And after the Lutzes, Amityville took on its own image, one that the residents of the village have never appreciated. No. It is still very much a quaint small town. And for those that have lived there all their lives, their feelings have never changed. Just outsiders fascinated with the home have made their town something it should have never been. Yeah. Kendra. Well, I'm going to go there to look at the pretty most, town. Most residents do not believe the home is haunted and instead remember the family that used to live there, especially the children who yeah. didn't get to grow up in the scar that was left. The house was vacant until March 1977 when Jim and Barbara Cromartie purchased the property. The Cromarties changed the address of the home, like I mentioned, to yeah. try and confuse tourists and ghost hunters. They used to line up to take photos, but the home is famous, you know, regardless right. of the address. Like we said, people are going to find it. They released this statement. The quiet village of Amityville, Long Island, has been made infamous by a hoax. It will possibly never be the same. It is Long Island's equivalent to Watergate. <laughs> None of us would be here today if a responsible publisher or author had not given credibility to two liars and allowed them the privilege of putting the word true in a book which in actuality is just a fucking novel. They didn't say fucking. I did. The credibility <laughs> of the hoax stems from using a charlatan Catholic priest who has been banned from performing his religious duties by the Diocese of Rockville Center, the equivalent of disbarment of a lawyer. This charlatan priest has been involved with a complicity to a lie and therefore deserves no credibility and should be dealt with accordingly. By the way, they went into legal battle over all of this, Weber and the Lutzes, uh -huh. and Weber won in a lot of cases, including the fact that this priest who was yelled at to get out and yeah. all of that, he never fucking went to the house not, ever. Oh, okay. Okay. He, was just he paid. exists. They used the name of a certain person, but that person's like, nope, never been. <laughs> and I know the girl, like she grew up here. Yep. But I've never been towards that house. Anyway, the Cromarties ended up suing Jay Anson and the Lutzes and the publishers of the book. <laughs> it wasn't made public, but all parties came to an undisclosed settlement. Oh. And the Cromarties reasoning being that the claims were solely for commercial exploitation. And it ultimately uh, yeah. harmed the people of Amityville. They lived there until 1987 when it was sold to Peter and Jean O'Neill. They altered the home in many ways, including the famous little quarter arch. Okay. To try Eyes, and make they're it look now different. squares. They filled in the pool. Oh, I don't blasphemy. appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Brian Wilson then purchased it for 310000 in 1997. Uh, I heard that someone else bought it in 2010, but did not find that. And lastly, in 2017, the house sold again for 605000 
which was $200,000 under what actually it was listed for, though. Okay. So there's still some shit going yeah. on there. And it's a beautiful property. Yeah. Tragic fucking history. Yeah. And that is the story of the DeFeo family murders and the possible, probably not hauntings of, <laughs> of the Amityville, Amityville horror. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like hearing, you know, the true story behind it. And we don't want to be in, you know, the rhythm of like debunking every I'm starting, episode. I'm starting to get really frustrated about it. I'm like, let me tell when we I just believe can't in. help it when the research comes yeah. up the way it has on these. Yes. Well, I enjoyed listening to this episode. I didn't know anything about the DeFeos. Neither and did I. Probably will still go to Amityville because my kiddo wants to see it. But yeah. I'll be able to tell them the story now and say this is the truth. And, and we don't know if it's actually haunted, but it's still the location, just like we're going to go to the Lizzie Borden house and everything like that. It's still a location that has a significance in the true crime world. Yes. And potentially it could be haunted by the DeFeo family. And what's funny is they never mentioned any hauntings of that home by the DeFeos. Right. So anyway, thank you for listening. Yes. We are excited to come back with Kendra's episode next week. And please find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. You got them. And also follow us on your favorite platform. Please yes. uh, rate, please. review, subscribe, download. You know the routine. Please do Lucid all of that to Lab help us out. Podcast. Thank yep. you. Uh, email lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com. Send in your stories and email us at P.O. Box 251 Eastlake, Colorado 80614. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Stay lucid. We'll talk to you soon. Stay lucid, baby. Bye. <laughs>